This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. December 15, 2016, and this is part one of episode five of Psychology is Dead. I'm your host, Quentin Moody, and it's the end of 2016, which means it's year-end list time, and for this installment of Psychology is Dead, it won't be on any specific topic where we're discussing psychology or wrestlers or styles or anything like that. Tonight, we're just discussing the top 50 wrestlers of 2016. And with me to do that is the man that was with me on the first episode of Psychology is Dead, Timothy from Lucha Undead and This Week in Wrestling. Timothy, how are you? Oh, I'm doing fantastic, Clinton. Um, As always. You're always fantastic. Oh, yes. Um, Yeah, I'm excited to get into this. I I hate doing lists. Um, (laughs) Unfortunately, (laughs) that's just how the wrestling world works. So we're going to be getting into it here. Yeah, so... Obviously, I guess, the top 50 wrestlers of 2016, this is going to be going up in two parts, probably going up on the same day. And the reason why I did this is because I just don't think anything on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, you know, goes, I guess, this long when it comes to year-end lists for modern wrestling. So I think this would just be something cool to add on to the feed for the end of the year and because I know myself and Timothy are people that heavily keep up with going with what's going on in the modern scene that it'd be fitting for us to I guess be the ones to do a show like this to cap off the year um, before we get into it Timothy is there anything I guess you want to say about your criteria for people you had on your list any blind spots that you had um what things were you looking for? Um, anything that you need to I guess say about your list? Yeah, I mean, to make it clear, my list I, biggest blind spots are just going to be Lucha, and it's not even a blind spot. I mean, I watch most of these matches that everyone touts about. I keep up with them. I just, I just don't like it. I honestly, it's not. A, it doesn't get it. It's just I don't enjoy Lucha. Um, so I, it's hard for me to judge. Um, there's there's maybe one or two people on here who made a case somewhat through Lucha Underground, um, which I don't think is Lucha at all, really. Um, but so there's that. I guess people could try to pick that apart or something. There's even there's probably at least uh, I mean there's at least one Luchador, maybe one semi Luchador in here, um, and also probably not. Like honestly, it's even a stretch to call who I have as Luchadors on my list Luchadors. Honestly, um, the other big blind spot for me is WWE which is going to I guess seem weird to some people but um, it's not just not following the product which it is it's mainly that I don't watch the television but I also don't uh, for grading purposes I don't consider most televised wrestling because of clipping 
um, because of you know different just different ways that it's produced, but pr- primarily clipping. So commercial breaks, stuff that you know is clearly edited. Um, SmackDown up until recently being you know not live, so you don't know what kind of crowd sweetening, what situations they added in, what retakes they did, stuff like that. So while someone like AJ Styles should probably be on my list, and it comes across insane. The problem that he's not. The problem for me is that. The majority of his work this year that I could consume would be in that way. Um, it would be given out in a way where it could have heavily been edited in different ways, where it's going to have, as I said, commercial breaks, things in the middle. Um, and then from just the stuff that you watch on pay-per-view that you know is live happening, um, without commercial breaks, I just don't – for me, there's just not enough there. Um, if, if you know, and that's crazy to say with WWE, everyone talking about how many pay-per-views they do. Oh my God, there's one every two weeks. But the problem, especially with the one every two weeks, is that even with that, because of the brand split, I mean, it's it's one a month still. So essentially, you're saying I'm going to judge AJ Styles, who's had this amazing career, and for my criteria, I'm going to judge him on 12 matches. Um, theoretically, from just the matches that he has once a month on pay-per-views, maybe 13, 14. Yeah. Um, you add, then you add that in. I know that there's house show tapes that you can watch on YouTube. A lot of the fan cams are shaky and shitty. Um, it's tough for me really to judge based on that. And I'm not going to go out of my way to watch a product that I don't like that way. So that's a big part of why I just don't feel correct judging a lot of WWE people. That said, there's one... Uh, definitely there's one slot on here that's a WWE act I'll just say that I mean and I guess that kind of gives it away but there's one slot there's one person and a few other that have have spent time this year in WWE and there's one act who spent this entire year in WWE that still ended up on my list so that's kind of that's kind of my blind spots. Um, you want to talk about criteria I mean I think I feel like I've already just talked too much I don't know I'm going to give you a chance Quentin if you want to rebut No go ahead and give you criteria Okay, so for me, my criteria is definitely about um, just who I like, honestly. I mean, a lot of it comes down to that. If I if I like you, I feel like you had a big impact, if you've delivered well, um, lots of matches. But then when it comes down to, let's say, splitting hairs and and who's going to be above the others, it's going gonna, it's gonna to turn into kind of a game of peaks. I don't worry so much about valleys and stuff that I don't like or stuff that I think detracts. I, I very rarely um, will kind of detract from someone's score based on a bad performance as much as I will you know, give them credit for good performances. Um, the other part of it, too, is, is um, the ability to show different styles picking up different, you know, showing off different techniques, having different types of matches. And then meanwhile, um, when you get high up into the list, there's some guys who are so fantastic at one style that they just overcome all of that. So realistically, my criteria is what feels right. Um, Some of that stuff is, you know, based around that stuff to make it important. As I said, different things that I think about when I'm trying to judge. But when it really comes down to it, I, I allow myself the ability to override everything and just say, this guy seems like he's better than that guy, so he has to be above him on the list. So that's kind of my criteria. As far as, I guess, my blind spots will go, I'm not really sure how many I have. I'm, I'll say I haven't seen as many um, lower-level UK indies as much as I would, I would have liked to this year. You know, I've seen a good amount of Fight Club Pro, and that'll show up on my list. But, you know, I haven't seen a lot of attack or anything along those lines. So some of those lower level UK indies won't be well represented with the guys on the list. Um, 
as far as my criteria goes, um, like you said, it's going to come down to who we like, essentially. But the R factors, like, you know, match output, variety in opponents and variety in roles they've played um, in their matches. One thing that I focused on was aura and presence a little bit. And, you know, that can be something, you know, as someone coming across as a star or someone fulfilling their role perfectly as a chicken shit heel or someone feeling like, you know, they have the entire crowd in their hands when they walk out um, behind the curtain. So anyone that has a kind of, you know, um, I guess enthralling presence to add on to their match output is someone that was going to do well for me on my list. But yeah, at the end of the day, it was something that was, I guess, you know, more focused on match output, but there were still things that factored into it. This uh, this wasn't a We Don't Know Wrestling 100, I guess, show, where the We Don't Know Wrestling 100 is 100% focused on match output. There are other things that make people stand out above the crop. So before we get into the list, is there anything, I guess, honorable mentions or like cuts that like, um, people that barely missed the list for you that you want to say? Oh, Jesus. I mean, yes, the Briscoes. I wanted to get the Briscoes in my top 50 really bad. And if we were doing top 100, they'd get there because I just, I really like them both so much and separately, honestly, not even as a tag team, which is not something that really crossed my mind to put them as a tag team um, on here just to kind of say I could get them in there because I just, I just couldn't make it work. Um, Will Ospreay ended up not on my list. Uh, wow. And he's a guy I'd, I'd love to get him on there, but I just I felt like he just didn't do it this year. Took took a good amount of time off for different injuries. Um, had some great matches in there. But for me, the 50... I mean, when you talk about it and you say, I haven't watched enough Attack. I mean, I've watched almost every Attack show this year. And when it comes down to me, when I'm judging my top 100... I don't think that anything that anyone's done on attack is really getting them on the hundred list. Right. I mean, the only guys on there who you could argue could get on the top 100, I mean, and did get on my list that we're going to even talk about guys like Mandrews, uh, Zexy Virginia, who had one match there, um, Tyler or Pete Dunn, Tyler Bate, those guys, but like, it's, it's not from anything they're doing in attack. So you're really not missing anything. The only right. guys who I could say came really close to getting on based solely on, and it would be Fight Club, Plural, and Attack, was the Hunter Brothers. I came really close to getting them somewhere on, on the list, but I just couldn't I just couldn't make it happen, honestly. They just didn't quite do it. And then for me, I would say my biggest, and he's kind of like my final cut, he's my 51 on my list right now, um, Sammy Gravara, a guy who I'd, I'd love to get in the top 50 just based on, I think that he's not just a spot guy. He's got some great... Um, psychology to his matches, he's fantastic, but I just, I just couldn't make it work. Honestly, I couldn't put him in the top fifty and have him be above anybody on there, or above any group of people on here, to where I felt like it was right. I got fifty people that I just, I, I definitely can say they're all, they were all better than him this year, and that's for uh, you know a bunch of different reasons. So that was probably my hardest one because he's a kid that I'm, I'm really behind. I'm really pushing for to do well, and I think he deserves it, but he's just not quite there yet. Yeah, and some of the cuts I had were um, the Young Bucks. I really wanted to get the Young Bucks on there. I thought they had a really strong push towards the end of the year, starting around, um, I guess, the Destruction Tour 
in September. I thought the Bucks had been outstanding since then. So it sucked to not be able to put them on. Um, Samoa Joe. I know you haven't been paying attention to NXT, but man, as a character, this may have been Samoa Joe's best work as a character. Not in the ring, and I think in the ring he's been largely a disappointment, which is why he didn't make my list. But as a character and the intensity and the over that he has, I really wanted to put Samoa Joe on because he's firing on all cylinders in that aspect. Um, Alexa Bliss. Alexa Bliss is legitimately my favorite person on the WWE roster right now. She's amazing with facial expressions. Um, very emotive, I guess, person. Very entertaining. Even if she's not as polished in the ring yet, she's very entertaining. and shows a lot of personality when she's in the ring. And she does have some good offense. Um, just there wasn't enough output other than one match with Bayley and NXT to justify putting Alexa Bliss on the list. So, um, that said, as far as um, people that barely, barely missed my list. Oh, wait, no. Shane Strickland. Shane Strickland. I really wanted to put him on. Um, he had a really good match in the second episode of Lucha Underground this season um, with uh, Marty DeMoth. Um, he's had a really good match with Will Ospreay. Good match with Desmond Xavier. The JML, the JMLL tag team was really good while it lasted. And I really wanted to put Strickland on. But I just couldn't find anywhere else to fit them. So that's it for as far as my cuts. So are you ready to get into the list proper? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So if you listen to any of these list shows on the place um, on the Place of Nation Network or on the PWO feed, then you know how this works. You know, I'll say someone if Timothy has them higher, then we'll get to them later. If I have someone and Timothy doesn't have them, then I'll just say what I want. Then I'll just say my piece on them. And, you know, so on and so on. So, starting with my number 50, someone I know you don't have, I have Charlotte. Charlotte Flair? Yes. Okay, I could definitely see that. And, um, again, it's it's just that WWE, you know, kind of blind spot that keeps her out of my list, honestly. Yeah, so the thing with Charlotte is that for a while, she was definitely the, um, she was the hardest pushed. But she wasn't the best received, I guess, online in well, this wrestling bubble. She was, you know, very robotic and not expressive when she talked. And when she wrestled, she was sloppy and it wasn't in an endearing way. <clears throat> but somewhere along the lines this year, like that switch flipped. And she became the performer that I think WWE always thought she could be. She became a very very strong heel character to the point where I think she's probably the best heel on Raw. She is probably the best heel on the entire show. Her in-ring output, yes, it's sloppy. The matches with Sasha Banks are sloppy, but she comes across as menacing and like a force to be reckoned with when she's tossing Sasha Banks around. She comes across as intimidating in a way that no other female on the roster does. And I think she's gotten to the point where she tells a story with her facial expressions. The match with um, Sasha Banks from Hell in a Cell. I'm not sure. Did you watch that match? I did. Um, I love that match. And something that I thought was brilliant was that there's not a lot of people in wrestling or in wrestling ever that I think that can switch heel roles, you know, 
and switch gears that fast. You know, going from like a vicious heel to a chicken shit heel to a desperate heel. And then that Hell in a Cell match with Sasha, you saw Charlotte, you know, step by step, you know, kind of do her own impersonation of Ric Flair, where people always talk about the four faces of Flair. You saw Charlotte kind of go through her own, you know, faces. She at first was vicious, attacking Sasha from the jump. And then she was scared when Sasha made her comeback. And she sold, you know, the fear of Sasha coming back from the dead tremendously. And then when we get to like the final few minutes, she sells her desperateness and her desire to win so so well. And I'm not sure anyone in WWE since probably Edge could do that that well, I think. So I really like Charlotte. I think the way that she's turned around a lot of people this year um, warranted her getting a spot on my list. Do you think that she could have gotten higher on your list if she wasn't kind of hampered by the fact that she's stuck with this brand split situation for a good chunk of the year where she's really wrestling the same two girls, two, three girls over and over again? Like, do you think that if you if she could have shown more against more opponents throughout the year, you she could have even gone higher? What do you think? Um, I'm not sure, because here's the thing is that Charlotte's best opponent has always been Sasha. And when you go back and watch their matches in NXT, that's always been clear is that Sasha always got the best out of her. So I'm not sure that if you give Charlotte a Dana Brooke or a Becky Lynch or a Bailey or anyone else to feud with, that it's as good because for some reason Sasha just brings the best out of her. And, you know, the thing is that the Charlotte feud with Natalia at the beginning of the year. And people did not like that feud at all. And I think that's part of the problem there is that the only other feud that she had with another person this year that wasn't Sasha Banks was kind of a dud. But I think the fact that the Sasha Banks feud has been so successful in the ring and has, you know, done things like, you know, give women the first, you know, um, pay-per-view main event in WWE history and they might be doing it again this weekend I think that was enough to get her on the list even though there wasn't um, I guess that variety there okay well I'll get into my number 50 here and uh, I know that you're just going to say we're talking about him later my number 50 is Sammy Callahan the death machine yeah we're talking about him later okay so I guess uh Quentin, you want me to do 49 or you got your 49? Yeah, you can do 49. My 49 is the villain Marty Skrull. Um, uh, I have Marty Skrull higher. Got him higher. All right. That's, uh, I guess. That's, a, that's, a, that's surprising. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think he definitely, I could see why other people have him higher. I've got my issues with him, but this is where he ended up for me. Right. Um, so, Quentin, what's your 49? My 49 is um, Kamatachi slash Hiramu Takahashi. Okay, well, we'll be talking about him very shortly. <laughs> All right, sweet. My number 48 is Ada. Ada. Um, I don't think I ended up getting him on the list, and I wanted to. No, so go for it, because I, I definitely see it. I just didn't have him quite this high. All right. So Ada, the thing with him is that he was getting pushed heavily in the Millennials, 
at first. That was a heavily pushed stable in Dragon Gate. They want them to be their next crop of top stars. Him and T-Hawk, they want them to be, you know, players in that system. And once they broke the Millennials up and they tried to push T-Hawk and Ada as singles acts, it didn't, necess- it didn't necessarily take well. Ada didn't deliver. Um, fans didn't react to him well. He was, he has rumors and history of being, you know, kind of a brat. And this year was Ada turning it around when easily Dragon Gate could have gave up on him at some point. He had that tremendous King of Gate run with that um, 20-minute time limit match versus Tazawa. He had the Jimmy Susamu match from, I think, June 2nd. The He had a rematch with Tazawa on the semifinals of the King of Gate show. So he has that great showing. He parlays that into getting a Dream Gate shot. I mean, Dream Gate. I mean, open a Brave Gate shot against Yosuke Santa Maria at Kobe World. And I thought that was a great match. The team of Dragon Kid, I thought, produced some really, really good stuff. And his Brave Gate run so far hasn't been the best. He's kind of got hampered with opponents that I don't think have gotten the best out of him. Uh, my brother Yasi, even all like Lindemann, the Lindemann match wasn't, you know, anything that good, even though that was a glimpse into the future of Dragon Gate. The Flamita match wasn't anything breathtaking. So in his de- title defenses so far, it hasn't been anything outstanding. But I think the fact that Ada has been able to rebound and recover himself so well after it could have gone really downhill was enough to get him on my list as an accomplishment. All right. Yeah, I mean, I definitely see it. I think that he's had, he definitely had some great matches. Uh, that Liger match comes to mind is something oh, that really stood yeah, out for him yeah, this the, year. Yeah, the Liger match yeah, with Super J was excellent didn't, stuff. Didn't mention that one. It was great. I thought that the Lindemann match was was really good, but it was more of a it was more of an angle gimmick kind of thing, showing off Lindemann as this new heel and playing yeah. up his gimmick and not really having a great match. I thought um, actually the match where he won the Brave Gate was probably the best match so far as he got it from Yosuke Santa Maria. I thought yeah, that I was agree. really good. Then I mean Santa Maria was on a hot streak at that time, but you know still not a a fantastic worker by any stretch of the imagination and talking about the millennial stuff is kind of funny it's just like thinking back to it i remember how much he stood out but how clear it was that it was they were kind of wanting to push t-hawk as the 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 number one focus of the group and i thought that ada stood out as the more dynamic and better worker but um oh yeah i do and i would agree i mean and i say this even though i love t-hawk since his um heel turn and he's joined berserk i think t-hawk's been tremendous but ada when they were in the millennials, Ada always stood out to me because he just had this innate charisma and, um, I guess, slyness and likability, even though he's kind of slimy, that T-Hawk didn't have. Yeah, and, that's true. Yeah, and he doesn't have that as much now in Overgeneration where they're pretty much complete baby faces. But Ada still has a really distinct style in the Dragon Gate system. And, you know, I think the fact that he gave Dragon Gate a reason to keep pushing him this year was, um, you know, something um, admirable when he could have, you know, folded when he didn't get his way or when things didn't go the way he wanted them to. Yeah, and he, I mean, over generation, he just doesn't really fit there at all, honestly. Um, yeah. That, I mean, the, the group it just feels like this bad, like, 
it's just a parody meant to send the crowd home happy kind of group. And the only reason why he makes sense in there is if the plan is just to break him out as a heel feuding with the rest of the, the kind of vet guys, because like out of anybody, I can't see him as the smiley baby face in the group thing. It just doesn't work. Um, so yeah, I just, he kind of, he kind of is saddled in that, in this, in that group right now, in that unit. And hopefully he can start picking up having better matches and better matches as it goes along. But, um, I guess I'll go into my 48. Yeah. So my 48 is Chuck Taylor or Dustin, uh, Big Dust. Um, I think a big reason why he gets this spot for me, it's not necessarily his matches. I think he's a, I think he's an underrated worker and I understand why people don't necessarily appreciate him that much is because he does a lot of silly comedy stuff, but that's fucking hard as is. He's naturally very funny. And I don't think that there's a lot of guys who can do good comedy work and have it actually be funny. Um, the funniest match I've ever seen in the history of wrestling, like everything that I've ever seen that's meant to be funny was him versus Kikutaro. The whole thing was fucking hilarious. The whole way through because you just you get both guys you get their personalities you're into it but this year he's also kind of gotten to show off a little bit more stuff he's done before he's played heel and fist but it feels like the heel and evolve is really all about actually being a heel fist was almost kind of at times felt jokey and it felt like oh it's you know it's kind of zany they're bad guys but it's chikara so they're cartoon villains um the evolve group he really feels like he's meant to be just a just an asshole and he plays it really well he, he's able to play up where it's still you can definitely still see flashes of chuck taylor as he gives a cocky smirk and you could tell that he's lighthearted and, and jovial at his core but he's just pissed off at the fans and the other wrestlers in the company um you turn around he has this amazing insane death match with trent at a pwg this year that i don't think anyone saw coming um He's a lot of times he's the linchpin in the big comedy matches that everyone goes crazy for during Bola weekend. Um, and this year was, you know, no exception. So yeah, I just, I feel like, uh, Chuck Taylor's a guy who doesn't get his due for being able to work all these different styles. I've, I've never really seen Chuck Taylor fuck up matches. He's always there. Um, you know what I mean? He, he definitely always hits his spots. He doesn't, he's not necessarily the best worker, but you know, like, I think that, a lot of his work is also not necessarily like the wrestling. I guess that's what I mean. He's not necessarily the best wrestler, but he's a fantastic worker in that I think he gets the crowds, you know, always into him. They're always into his match. He gets across the story that he's telling. He never fucks up his spots is what I mean. Like, I've never seen him blow any spots. He's always crisp and on point with that, even if he's not thought of as a super athletic, great wrestler. So I just think he's a guy who doesn't get the credit he deserves. Oh, yeah, I 100% agree there. I think Chuck Taylor's... Honestly, one of the more perennially underrated guys in, you know, I guess this last, you know, decade of wrestling. You know, I don't love him, but you can't deny the fact that Chuck Taylor has always done something or done things that worked for him that wouldn't work for anyone else. So Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, so I can see the Chuck Taylor pick 100%. Um, so you're 47. My 47 is a guy who you had just a shade or two lower. I've got uh, Yujiro Takahashi. No, I know. Uh, Himo Takahashi. Uh, Kamatachi. Kamatachi, yeah. I think. Uh, fucking amazing wrestler. Um, the first time I saw him in PWG, I just instantly got it. And he was a guy that I wasn't necessarily not high on, but a guy that I wasn't as high on because I wasn't watching. Or I was watching, but I wasn't you know, creaming my, my jeans over the uh, the feud with Dragon Lee and CMLL just because I have issues with the, you know, the bright colors and the flashing lights and the horns and just the way that Lucha works for the psychology of the matches. But I could definitely see that, oh yeah, this kid's talented. Then I see... Um, 
him have the match. I think, God, was that even this year? Fantastica Mania. Yeah. They, they bring that match to New Japan, which was early in the year. Um, and I, I think I gave that four and a half, four and a quarter starts, probably in my, you know, my top matches of the year after all is said and done. At the time, it felt like it was going to be a shoe-in for top ten match of the year, but 2016 has been fucking nuts. Um, and so then I see him live, and I'm like, oh, this guy just knows how to work. Because he instantly was over to the PWG crowd. Then I saw him at ROH Live a couple, you know, like a couple weeks later, and it was not completely different, but it was different enough where I was like, oh, he gets how to work for this crowd. So he's just a guy who's a, a really great worker in the sense of working the crowd. He knows what to deliver for where he's at. Um, fantastic, nutty stuff. Then he, yeah, then they bring back the Dragon Lee Kamatachi match again recently in um, in ROH, and it was just fucking wild um as part of the the trios team with the addiction and working with the addiction in general he was great as their kind of just little underling and but they never kind of they never played up the the kind of sneaky foreigner aspect which i was i was happy that they didn't do that because knowing christopher daniels and how he loves old school i could have seen them doing something like that which they never did he was just supposed to be an asshole um then he pops back up and and He's back in New Japan, and I mean, he hasn't done much yet as Ingo Bernabe, as part of Ingo Bernabe's, but um, definitely exciting. And, and I just think a guy, as I said, who just gets it for such a young guy. Um, he can have crazy, wild spot fest matches, but I think he also knows what he's doing. And I think there's a lot of guys who just know how to have spot fests, and that's not really what he's doing. He's like, he's really doing that to get attention, but he also knows how to tone it down and have matches that are just, you know, essentially not as crazy, but still engaging to the crowd. Yeah. Um, the reason why I had him on my list is obviously last year was the breakout with the first few, you know, big Dragon Lee versus Kamatachi matches. But the thing that stood out to me this year is that I think he proved more than ever is that he wasn't just a guy that has the Dragon Lee matches. Even though there's three Dragon Lee matches that he had this year that I gave, you know, four stars or higher to, he has the Maximo Sexy match. I know you didn't watch, but it was from January 1st, and I thought that was a tremendous match. And I gave that four and a half, where it's like Kamatachi is doing his best heel work. He is such, you know, a complete dick to this Exotico character, and he's just making it work tremendously. He doesn't need to do the go-go-go style. He can do something that's, you know, deeply rooted in limb work and character work and making, you know, and getting heat for the baby face. You know, he's great at doing that. And then he goes to PWG. And he had the match with Elgin that I know I like more than you. And that was his debut. But the thing that really solidified it for me is that match with Trevor Lee from night two. Oh, God, I didn't even... Yeah, I didn't even bring that up. That was so fucking good. So the thing that made that, like, maybe, like, solidified it for me was that his entire run, you know, in his excursion, Kamatachi has essentially been a heel. He was, you know, he's been a heel in Ring of Honor in that short little run there. And he was a heel, you know, his entire time with CMLL. But when he goes to PWG and he has this match with Trevor Lee, and even to an extent, extent of the match with Elgin, like, he's, like, working fiery babyface. And we made this, you know, comparison before when we um, did the Supreme Lucha episode where we talked about the, your Bola experience. But he was, like, really Akira Tozawa-like and his, like, fiery babyface emotives and how the, like, fans would do, like, a call and response to him when he would, like, yell and do all that stuff. And it blew my mind because this guy really never worked as a heel 
I mean, as a face during an excursion. But he's showing that's another, you know, tool in his arsenal that he can bust out anytime he wants to. And I thought that was really impressive. And he's really just a chameleon. That guy fits in everywhere. You put him in CMLL, and that guy feels like a luchador. That guy feels like he should be a regular there, that he should never leave. You put him in PWG, and you can have him on every PWG show, and I guarantee he'd have one of the, you know, best or top two matches on the show. You can put him in Ring of Honor, and he can do really good TV stuff or really good six-man tag stuff. And then you put him back in his home promotion in New Japan, and then automatically, as soon as he comes back and he challenges Kushida, he feels like a big deal. He has this charisma that no one else has. It's kind of, you know, sly. He's kind of cool. He's kind of creepy, but he's, you know, still an asshole. But he has this, you know, charisma that no one else really has, I think. And, you know, I think the guy's fantastic. And at the Wrestle Kingdom 11, he's facing Kushida for the junior title. And, you know, I have high hopes for that because I think both of those guys are tremendous wrestlers. And I'm hoping that's going to be a real, um, I guess definitive breakout for Kamatachi um, in 2017. So I guess my 47, right? Yeah. So my 47 is Sammy Guevara. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how he got on your list. You couldn't make it on mine, huh? <laughs> yeah, I thought, I mean, I thought for sure you'd make your list. But um, Sammy is really someone that it blows my mind that he hasn't gotten a high profile booking somewhere because he's essentially everything that you want the guy is obviously very young very good looking kid can do all the athletic stuff he has spots that will blow your mind he has a 630 that looks absolutely killer it's maybe the most dangerous looking for like a 630 other than Peter Casas like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's because this is legitimately dangerous, but yeah. that's a whole other story. Yeah, but other than Peter Casas, like Guevara's six thirty looks like it fucking kills people. But the thing that got him on my list, and it wasn't just the you know being a good looking kid who can do athletic stuff, because there's been a lot of those guys that have come out like you know come down the pike recently. The reason why he's on my list is because I don't think anyone that's had that kind of, you know, athletic template has had the kind of character and personality that Sammy Guevara has. And he does it so well. This guy is such a cocky piece of shit. He's a young gun that thinks he's better than everyone else. And the problem is, he is. He wins. He gets these big wins over guys like Ray Rowe or Eddie Kingston or ACH or whatever. He gets these wins. It's not like he's some guy that can't back up what he says. You hate him because he runs his mouth, does all these things, and then goes out there and backs it up. And the thing is that when you have a style that's as dynamic and as flashy as Sammy's, it'd be easy for the crowd to turn and start to cheer for you. But what he does is that even when he has this great tear-down-the-house banger of a match... He'll heal back on the crowd immediately and get that heat back. He's not trying to turn himself babyface. He wants to be a heel, and he's not going to let you try to turn him. He turns when he wants to. He makes the he makes the tide turn when he wants to. He has that kind of control over a crowd, and that's amazing for a guy that's in his early 20s. 
So, yeah, I think he's like low on my list, but I think I wanted to have him on just to represent the fact that I think in 2017 he'll have an even better year and that 2016 was still, you know, great enough that he earned a spot on my list. Yeah, no, he's putting it together, and as I said, he's probably my hardest my hardest cut from this top fifty. And and I still, as I say, I got him fifty one at the moment. He's just he's just right there. And realistically, everything you said, we talk about him at length over on this week in wrestling. So if you want to go over there and listen to that, we cover a good chunk of his matches, especially because Pete, my co host over there, gets to see him live, and he's just kid something else. He takes, as you said, you're talking about him being such a good looking young kid. He takes. Being good, this good-looking young kid, and he turns that around from what you expect of that blowjob babyface, and he turns it into a fucking prick heel. And I, it really got me one time when I noticed that that he plays Justin Bieber in some ways, and it's like he kind of looks like him, and he plays off that because people instantly kind of hate that guy. And it just it didn't click for me until like I noticed that a little bit, and then I was just like, oh, this kid's a fucking genius. And then he plays it up in his matches and everything he does. So he's just fantastic. So. My 46, I think, is where I'm at, uh, right? Because that was your 47. Hold on, wait. Yeah, I do 47, then I do my 46. <laughs> okay, you want to do 46? Go for it. Yeah, so my 46 is Mark Haskins. Uh, we will definitely be talking about him later. All right, no problem. So you're 46. My 46 is Matt Hardy. Matt freaking Hardy. I have him a couple spots higher. All right, cool. You want me to do 45 or? Yeah, 45. Okay, my 45 is Shingo Takagi. I have him way higher. I figured as much. My 45 is Shinsuke Nakamura. Um, <laughs> you can talk about him, honestly. <laughs> um, I think he didn't make my first wave of cuts, honestly. And I know that that's, that sounds shitty, but in this year, I, I've seen him live for the first time, and it didn't, it didn't spark my interest. I'm just, I was checked out on him when he was still in New Japan honestly I lost my interest so then now he's in NXT and I I hate to say it but I just I just don't care I, I mean I know that he's a good worker I know that he's good but I I've seen enough of him honestly oh no I agree like here's the thing is that I have him on my list and this sounds like we're coming from me where I'll describe myself as I'm a really really into it modern New Japan fan so it'll sound weird coming from someone who had, like, you know, Okada and Tanahashi on his GWE list. But I am really critical of Nakamura a lot. You know this firsthand that I rip into the guy a lot of the time. So, the reason why I had to put him on the list, though, is that his top two matches this year are among the best matches I've seen all year in wrestling. So, the AJ Styles Wrestle Kingdom 10 match. Fantastic match. I love it. You know, it's tremendously worked. It feels like a dream match, which is something that I'll get to in his next match, where it feels like a dream match that delivers on every level. It feels as special as you would think it would for two guys that are meant to be, you know, the top performers in the world. Then he has this, you know, extravagant, you know, debut at WrestleMania weekend over at NXT TakeOver Dallas where he faces Sami Zayn. And this is going to be, you know weird, but I couldn't leave him off my list when he's part of a match that made me that emotional. And it's because I don't really react that way to wrestling that much. Like, I'll be happy it could get some kind of emotion out of me, but I don't get overwhelming joy 
lot watching wrestling. Like, the only times this happened is, like, you know, WrestleMania 25, Shawn Michaels and Undertaker watching it with my brother on the couch. That's when we were kids, and that's a special moment to me because we're watching a special match, and I get to share that with my family. And that's what I did with Sami Zayn versus Shinsuke Nakamura. It was me and my brother sitting on the couch watching this guy that we know and love and it's this guy he's coming out with this ridiculous violins and all these lights it's sensory overload and then the crowd is singing along and then it just feels like you're watching something that's history making and then the match happens and the match is like you know it's pretty much you know the same template as the G1 you know Kota Ibushi versus Shinsuke Nakamura match but shit that's a pretty good match to you know copy the template of so I have no problem with that and the match delivers for me and it's just something that on every level it connected it made me feel like a kid again and then you know I think he's been good adjusting to um, working a weekly TV style so he comes out and actually cuts promos that I actually think is very, that, that I think have been very good he's a guy that's obviously charismatic and it, the charisma carries over to him speaking in English very well surprisingly and I actually liked his match versus um Austin Aries from I think take over the end um main thing that keeps him from being higher is I really 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 don't like that Samoa Joe feud I don't like it at all <laughs> so that's the thing that keeps him from being higher but you know like I said, when he's been part of, you know, two very high-end matches, and one of them was, like, a throwback to me feeling like a kid, you know, I have to at least acknowledge that the guy, you know, did something special for me this year. All right. I mean, I could definitely see that. And if I was into the Sami Zayn match, I might be different. But I I really didn't see much special about that match. Um, see, like that's, and it, the, thing, the thing with that match is that, it has a lot going for it if you still cared about the origins of NXT and what that match was. Sami Zayn was the guy at NXT. He's the guy that put NXT on the map. That's just the truth. From 2013 with the match with Cesaro, the 2 or 3 Falls match, and you can trace every takeover or every special moment in NXT prior to the women's you know revolution stuff that Sami Zayn was the center of it. So, in that regard, I'm seeing the guy that built this thing that I love. You know, he's in his last match, and it's this guy who's coming in to take his place. And it feels like a changing of the guard. So, if the match, I can understand the match not being amazing, but I think the story of it is what I like more than anything. And that might be part of why it didn't work for me, is because I was watching NXT before Sami Zayn showed up. Yeah, and so like for me, you know, I think of Biggie, you know, um, Seth Rollins, even Cassius Ono, you know, those guys. As like, I remember really loving watching them on NXT, um, and then you know, Adrian Neville coming in, and all, and Bo Dallas obviously becoming like this big deal. So like all those guys, Tyson Kidd, re like just changing who he is as a person completely as a character and then becoming a big deal and like revamping his career only to have it cut short, you know? So even yeah, Cesaro coming back and forth when he would, I remember Rusev's first yeah. match losing to Dolph Ziggler. You know what I mean? So like for me, like NXT wasn't about Sammy. 
and I get where you're coming from that like you're so right that it it was that way that it kind of exploded around him as he because he came in when it was nothing and I think you know and started having the, these crazy the, matches the two to three falls match you know I always point this as that was when people realized like huh there's something weird going on developmental right now because you're not supposed to be getting match of the year candidates out of the developmental territory so, right and that and that was kind of it but I think me not seeing Sammy that way and then playing into the fact that I was kind of done with dogging it Nakamura from yeah. the tag league the year prior I think the tag league the year prior 2015 tag league was the year where I really was like fuck Nakamura like oh. where this guy is gone in every match he disappears he does almost nothing when he comes in and I was just like he is so fucking lazy oh, you know I, and I had a moment with him like two last year with that Goto feud or the IC title I yeah. like legitimately had to stop watching New Japan for the rest of the year because I'm like this makes me so angry and I should not be angry over you know just this feud but that entire thing made me so angry that I had to stop watching New Japan for the rest of 2015 but you know look I criticize the guy a lot he is lazy he is very choosy and when he wants to give his full effort he can very he can be very selective in his shoot in his selling and when he wants to be really good at selling he's really good at it when he doesn't care he will not acknowledge it at all but he has two really high-end matches for me this year and I just had to I guess not acknowledge it despite my criticisms of him yeah no I, I, I think I'm I'm just a little bit further jaded than you I think in that regard yeah so was that my 40 did you do your 45 yet I did all right, so um, my forty-four is Matt Hardy. Okay, which I <laughs> just brought up. Yeah. Um, so you can go ahead okay. first. <laughs> okay, so I mean, fuck, I'm not gonna even lie here. I've seen very little Matt Hardy wrestling this year, but that's not what matters. Um, yeah. At the beginning of the year, he had what I would call a terrible match with Lance Storm. Um, it was not even like you can't even blame Lance Storm, although he didn't help. Um, and Lance is a guy who I usually like, but in that match he was pretty bad. Um, they got Missy Hyatt involved for some bullshit where I think it was supposed to be one of those pretend that you're going to pull down her top things that just kind of didn't work. Um, the whole thing was sloppy and shitty, and it's just not what you would expect from Lance Storm. Um, pretty easy to blame on Matt Hardy, but like I said, it wasn't 100% Matt Hardy. The match was just kind of bad. Um, he was okay throughout a good chunk of the year, didn't do much, um, kind of doing the big money Matt character that I think is funny. People were giving him credit for, like, creating that. When he was doing that in ROH a few years ago. Yeah, so I'm like, oh, that's not, that wasn't anything. He was like, he's been doing this character for a while, and then finally it hits with this broken Matt Hardy thing, and Jesus Christ, I mean, from the first final deletion, the match in their backyard was fucking crazy, just everything that's going on in the video, um, the the tag team match with, with Brother brother Hero that I just thought was fantastic, um, and yeah, it's like, he honestly didn't need to wrestle, and Matt Hardy's a guy who hasn't gotten the credit for, people are like really excited about this right now, but if you stop and look, I mean, the guy has been doing this for years. Yeah. I mean, He's always come up with a way to get over using the you know the newest technologies in the best ways. He got himself in trouble a couple times, eating, eating grapes, talking shit about CM Punk and different things like that. So um, 
whatever, but you got, you know, the di- the demonic or the angelic Diablo coming into ROH as he's playing these YouTube videos. I mean, that was early on when people weren't doing any of their own videos at home. And here's a big star, a former champion doing these things. So it's like, it's kind of funny that people think like, oh, where did this all come from? It's, so great. it's like Matt Hardy's been doing this forever. And yeah mixing everything up and having drones and telegram or uh, holograms and just making chicken shit or chicken salad out of chicken shit honestly is the biggest what it comes to i mean no one gives a fuck about tna i'm sorry but no one cares at all but everyone watches the final deletion or the whatever deletion broken hearty stuff everyone's watching all of it doesn't matter if it's got abyss and crazy steve who who also no one gives a shit about but they'll get into it for that and yeah, this guy is just, he's a genius when it comes to marketing. He's a genius when it comes to working. I loved his run in ROH. I thought he was fantastic. So, you know, him getting a, a, a third, fourth, fifth chance here with Broken Matt is great. Um, then you're working into knowing that they're doing this crazy stuff with ROH where he pops up on the screen during Final Battle and the whole crowd goes nuts for him. I mean, he's probably one of the most over acts in wrestling. He could show up anywhere and he's instantly over at this point. And there's very few other acts that can do that. The thing that, and I almost wrote an article about it this year, but it's something that struck me is that like we're all like fawning over this broken Matt character, but the fact is that Matt Hardy's been using you know social media to his advantage, essentially since he got fired from WWE back in like two thousand five or four. Like when he got as soon as there was social media, he was using it. Yeah. Like, literally, in the, you know, middle of the 2000s, after he got fired from that whole, you know, Edge and Lita thing, he was on social media, you know, on, you know, anything to get his side of the story out. He was making himself, you know, this vigilant figure that got wronged by the company, by the woman that scorned him, by his ex-best friend, by the company that, you know, fired him wrongly. He became this valiant figure and from that point on Matt Hardy's been able to use social media to his advantage more than anyone else I'll say this that Matt Hardy is the father of you know using social media to get yourself over the Young Bucks and Kevin Steen and all these wrestlers do it now but Matt Hardy was the one to do that Matt Hardy was the one to make that a thing Matt Hardy is always ahead of trends Matt Hardy always wants to reinvent himself and the fact that, you know, more than 20 years into his career, Matt Hardy found another way to reinvent himself. And not only reinvent himself to stay relevant, reinvent himself to become a star again. Reinvent himself that where he's even a star outside of the TNA, you know, impact, you know, universe. You know, people are chanting delete at AW shows, at PWG shows, at Ring of Honor shows. You know, Matt Hardy can go to PWX and... AW and all these places as a special attraction. He reinvented himself to being a star, not just being relevant. And I think that when you do it that strongly with a character that's so over the top, ridiculous, and so self aware, and that is going against everything that people say is, you know, okay in pro wrestling, and, you know, embracing the theatrical aspect with the, you know, very horrible and overplayed, you know, almost like British accent. And he's playing it up so much that, you know, you know, it's hard for me to deny someone that even when his in-ring resume is nearly non-existent, 
what he's accomplished, you know, as far as reinventing himself more than warrants a spot on the list. And I think that come, you know, Observer Award season, that Matt Hardy is a guy that people should legitimately consider for the Flair Thez Award. And I'm not saying that, you know, lightly. People really need to consider Matt Hardy's impact as far as social media and what reinventing himself did for a brand in TNA that has nothing going for it outside of the, you know, broken Matt Hardy stuff. Well, and just imagine if he was doing it in a company people cared about. That's the fucking, that's kind of the the saddest part of it. Imagine if this was happening where people actually cared. Matt Hardy single-handedly made people watch TNA. He made TNA interesting. He, what he did was so important to TNA's year that they gave him the entire two-hour block for this week's Impact episode. <laughs> oh, it's great. Seriously, I want everyone listening to put that in perspective. They gave one person the entire two-hour block of Impact to do the character that, you know, has gotten massively over this year. Matt Hardy is a fucking genius. That's it. Who's your forty-three or forty-four, whatever? Forty-four. My my forty-four, and it's it's kind of perfect coming off of that. My forty-four are the Young Bucks, and as you talk about, they are the they're the new school version of the Hardy Boys, as everyone has always said. But they they get it in a way that's fucking amazing. Um, like they. They troll everyone. They're involved with this Kenny Omega stuff where it's essentially taking advantage of every smart fan constantly. People who think they know what they're talking about. I mean, God, you know, it's 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 so great. They've created characters that people see in the ring, and then they've created characters that people see online. And then there's also still the real guys. And you know what I mean? It's just, it's so cool the way that they multi-layer everything. And they aren't afraid to stir shit up on Twitter. And they aren't afraid to pop on this podcast with the, with uh, Doc Gallows and Luke, or God damn it, I think I got, yeah, Doc Gallows and Carl Anderson, Machine Gun, and like talk some stupid shit where they're like putting themselves over and bragging about themselves in a way that's like funny and cheeky, and but it can also get them more heat if you take it the wrong way, so that's perfect too. Um, and then they're, you know, single handedly the most important act in indie wrestling for most of the year, um, drawing a lot of shows, probably drawing the entire crowd. Um, selling shirts like crazy. I think it's funny. I've said I, even though Reseda PWG is kind of home for them and, and a big deal, and, and definitely they're a big deal to us. I feel like they probably sell less shirts in Reseda than they do anywhere else. <laughs> I mean, just the sure fact that the crowd is not that huge, but also the fact that I think you know there's a lot of other people that are smart enough to bring their own shirts now. They've picked up on that game. Adam Cole, uh, Kevin Steen, and then on top of that, the fact that like you know, not that we're burnt out on them, but it's like. You know, they're Matt and Nick. We've been seeing them in Reseda since, you know, early 2000s, 2003, 2004. More than 10 um, years. Re- like, those are, like, yeah. like, those are your boys. Yeah, and, like, super proud of them for everything that they've done. But one time they were in the ring uh, selling shirts, and I popped by, and I was walking by, and they had their friend with them. And I looked up, and I looked for a second, and I go, 
is that one of the Cutler brothers? And that was more when I was popping about one of the Cutler brothers was there. And uh, Matt Jackson looks at me and he goes, oh, yeah, they're like our best friends, dude. Didn't you know that? And I was just like, yeah, but I mean, I just didn't expect to see them. And like, we're just kind of shooting the shit. So it's just like, they're just dudes. But then in the ring, fuck, like, I'm screaming, fuck the Young Bucks as loud as I can. I hate these guys. And I just, they're such fucking pricks. And then they turn around and they have great matches in PWG. They have fantastic matches. And then finally, I mean, for the year, I think... We'll put them over the top as that big three-way ladder war just recently. It was the show, I think it was All-Star Extravaganza. It was before um, Final Battle. They have the big ladder war where they, they tell this epic story with uh, the addiction and Chris Daniels coming to the end of the line. And they're, they're in there, and while they're doing the spot fest, there's a narrative to their spot fest. They continue to op- you know go over the top and over the top they play this amazing sadistic character that that i just think is so great that they always kind of stay connected to and i and i've heard arguments you know that they they make too much money and they're protected too much in roh it seems like they're more interested in being serious in roh they definitely haven't done a lot of huge stuff that stands out in new japan but they still have fucking awesome fun spot fest matches in new japan every time they go out there so i just i kind of love the young bucks i think that they're really just a fucking great act so much fun so great live you know the match with ricochet and matt seidel um match with death by elbow the match with uh, pentagon and phoenix i mean all the stuff that i've seen live just so amazing and when the young bucks are out there going you're just kind of caught up in it and you don't really think about you know what's the story of this match how come this doesn't have a tag structure which honestly they can do tag structure pretty well and they as you talked about sammy gravara they do a great job of being high spot guys who can still get heel heat from just being cocky assholes the whole way through so yeah i I like the young bucks yeah i definitely agree with everything you said and the thing that i always like about the young bucks is that a lot of people say that the young bucks you know are too cutesy or so that when they try to be you know compelling you know ass kickers or when they get serious that they don't buy it and I just think that's bullshit I always think that when the people that play around or joke too much or you know do that is that when they get serious it's way more interesting than someone that's always serious because when they do it it just you know means more so when the Bucks you know decide to kill Pentagon and Phoenix with early onset Alzheimer's yet yeah, like that means something they're not fucking around anymore or when they do it to the Briscoes like that means something, and yeah, you're right. When it, they're geniuses when it comes to marketing themselves, and I think, like I said, you know, when I'm talking about my final cuts, is that since September they've really come on strong with you know their matches against the Briscoes. You mentioned their Bola stuff. They had a really they had really good matches with um Side and Ricochet and against Death by Elbow. Um, they had a really good match in the UK against Marty Scurll and Will Ospreay. You know, obviously the Bola Six Man is infamous. You know, Meltzer gave it five stars, and look, I don't think it's you know five stars, but you'll be you know hard pressed to find a better spot fest this year than that. So, look, I just think that the Bucks are really, really good, and um, even going beyond their act, I think they're just really good wrestlers that know, I guess, when to do things and when not to. So you're forty three. My 43 is Ginny um, from Ginny, Progress. I have Ginny a little bit higher. All right. So my 43 is Mark Andrews. I have Mark Andrews noticeably higher. Nah, not noticeably, but higher. Okay. My 42 is Travis Banks. Travis Banks was a tough final cut for me. So, Ooh, you know, okay. we can get into it. I like Travis Banks, but I just don't think... 
he's quite top 50 level yet. I think he's good, but he's not quite there. I think he's a really smart worker, but um, he's still getting there. All right. So initially, I wasn't even sure Travis Banks would make my list. Um, I've liked him a lot this year. Um, I really like the South Pacific um, Power Trip Act and Progress, but I started to think about it, and it was really interesting to me that when I think of guys, you know, based in the UK, who've had you know really great match output, Travis Banks is like in my top five. When I think about his like all of his Fight Club Pro stuff, you know, the the stuff that he didn't attack, you know, even if I saw a limited amount, limited amount of it. And the progress stuff that when, when he came in, he has a lot of really good stuff. And obviously, the bulk of his cases are by Club Pro. Um, the matches with Tyler Bate, matches with um, Shane Strickland, Chris Brooks, uh, Trent Seven, Sammy Callahan, guys like that. Um, that's the bulk of his case, really. But then I think, well, as far as in ring goes, but then you add in the character work in progress when he's teaming with T.K. Cooper, and they are a really, really good, you know, heel act. Obnoxious heels. They take advantage of whatever they can. And I think that balances out really well for his case. Even if I think he's poised for a better 2017, like Sammy Guevara, I think that he's done so much in 2016 that it'd be hard for me to leave him off because it's not like his 2016 wasn't great. Yeah, I mean, I like I said, I I definitely God, let me scroll down here and see where I have him right now. I have him at fifty three right now. Oh right, yeah, yeah. And so I mean, he just barely missed that cut. So I mean, he's a guy who has been really good. I think he's a guy. I think it's going to sound stupid to a lot of wrestling fans, but I think that I would have him higher if I thought that he played along more in Attack. Right. Um, he's had some good matches there and, and shown some good output, but he's always – it's funny because in Attack, rather than doing the comedy relief, they tend to do like the serious wrestling relief. Yeah. And he's a guy who always plays a little bit more serious and seems to be like, I'm just doing this. And that's – I think he's a little tight still. I think yeah. that he's young, he's green, and he's not as comfortable in himself. And I think that it, it affects his match quality somewhat. Um, I thought that the match with Tyler Bate I thought was going to be like a can't-miss great match of the year contender thing. And then it ended up um, – it really kind of felt a little stale for me. There was a lot of – I think that he has an issue with trying really hard to stand out. So he won't right. – slow down and sell and let the other guy that he's wrestling shine for too long. So it's it's just little stuff that I think he'll definitely get as he um as he gets a little bit more seasoned. Do you think he has some like kind of um maybe Davy Richards in him where Davy I guess was so focused a lot on not getting a shit in but Davy always worked hard cuz Davy wanted to get noticed and Davy wanted to be great. Do you think Travis is like still focused on being a great wrestler that people focus on? Yeah, and, and the thing is, is that right now is the time to do it, right. and so like, there's nothing wrong with that. And I mean, you go the other way and you turn into Eddie Dennis, right? And you're just right. kind of a I joke and play around all the time. And Eddie Dennis is a guy who had all the potential in the world with this great natural charisma, great size, good good enough worker, and his kind of 
shoddy attitude towards putting any effort into wrestling has held him back. Um, so it's kind of it can it can swing both ways. But right now is the time for Banks to be trying to make sure that he stands out because he's just getting his name out there. He can definitely be a big deal, but we'll see. I mean, it's tough to say. Yeah, he's like Davey Richards in that he's young and hungry. But most wrestlers at at, at this point in their career should be young and hungry. Yeah. So I can definitely see that. But it's a it's a weird comparison to make because you have to start getting into that low key level of taking yourself too seriously yeah. before you can start like kind of making those those accusations. You know, I think I'm not. Sure, I mean, yeah, it's kind of heavy right now. But I think the thing that stands out to me is that when Matt Riddle came to progress at Chapter Thirty Nine. Everyone else in that, you know, championship match, you know, let Matt Riddle, you know, easily, like, make it clear that he could have tapped them out if they didn't get to the ropes. Travis Banks didn't let that happen. Yep. And so, I think I, someone's been listening to This Week in Wrestling. Ah. I mean, that's just something I, mean, that's just something I noticed, too. And I'm like, no, you know, I know. Yeah, I'm glad you guys pointed it out. But it's like, you know, Travis Banks didn't let Matt Riddle show him up. And I'm not sure it's, you know, low-key going into business for himself or Davey being, or Davey being greedy levels. But it's certainly there where he didn't want to look weak, you know, with a guy that was on the level of Matt Riddle. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's kind of like this is a moment where it doesn't hurt you to look bad. Everybody else rolled into the ropes, like, you know, to, to signify that they broke the submission hole, but he would have got the best of him. But no, you're right. I mean, in the end, he was still fighting for a front face lock and, as Riddle was uh, kind of doing gator rolls on him. And it was just it was very interesting. And it just it did show like he he couldn't just calm down and let himself look bad for a second. Yeah, so um who's your 42? My 42 is Bobby Fish. I don't have Bobby Fish. I you know, I didn't think you would. Um Bobby Fish is a consummate tweener. Um and I really appreciate that from him. Um it really stood out to me during the best of the super juniors and that's where I think some of his best work this year, nah, you know, some of his best, as I say, tweener roles and really working the crowd. I um, mean, these smaller gyms and stuff happened this year. He was, um, he's able to really get how that works because a lot of guys think like, oh, I'm a tweener, I'm not a face or a heel, and it's not, that's not quite right. Um, the way he works it is when he wrestles baby faces, he's a heel, and when he wrestles heels, he's a baby face, and that's the way you make it work. And Bobby Fish as a heel is really good at being. You know, boisterous, cocky, and confident. I love him taking the second to pull the mouth guard out to talk some trash. Um, turns around and he's focusing on a limb. He's staying all over it. He's taking snidely cheap shots here and there, but nothing too crazy. He's like a he's a rule bender, and which is nice because the way that he can work it, it can go both ways. Where you don't, he doesn't automatically turn himself completely heel. Um, then he can turn around and be babyface, and he's having matches with Roderick Strong, where Roddy's the heel, and just you know. Uh, as I say, picking up like as a baby face, working from underneath, selling, but always focused, always feels like he's on the attack. He's fiery. He's aggressive. Um, I think he's a guy that you know gets kind of unnoticed. And I think it sucks that his TV title run got cut short. And I feel like it was somewhat about political games and stuff going on within ROH and big shakeups and all this because, you know, he – it's pretty widely publicized. He was supposed to get that TV title a couple months before he did, and he was probably supposed to keep it for a couple months longer than he did. So um, that TV title run for him kind of got cut short. But 
I think the build to him getting the title was a big deal. All the Red Dragon matches are important. The matches with Shibata, um, the matches teaming with Shibata, going for the Never Trios tag titles with Kyle and Shibata. Fantastic stuff where he could go from, you know, just a few months back coming across like a fanboy to Sakuraba to being a guy who's on the level with Shibata and the tag team. Um, they're not, you know, they, they transitioned over to being cons- seen more as heavyweights in New Japan, um, pretty easily. And, and him playing the the kind of player coach to Kyle O'Reilly, I think, has been a big part of what's helped Kyle O'Reilly get to the level where he is now the ROH champion. And I think that you can't overlook how important Bobby Fish was to to being the conduit to making that happen. Um, you know, both in ring and out of the ring, and both like in you know character work and helping carry some promos and stuff like that, and and all that. And I've said I think that Bobby Fish's promo style. Um, works really well for the back-to-back promos that they like to do, the videos that they, they kind of um, edit together for ROH, where he kind of does a point-counterpoint really well against whoever his opponent is, and, and it's just because he's so kind of smart and quick-witted. So, um, yeah, I thought like the matches with Dalton Castle really made Dalton Castle feel like a player, and then that kind of got dropped and wasted as Castle goes on to Colt Cabana, but it was like when he was feuding with Bobby Fish, it felt like Dalton Castle was on his way to the World Championship, and, and that just goes to show that it was Bobby Fish who can make everybody look like they're important make everybody look like a star while also keeping himself strong he's not one of these guys who to put somebody else over he has to sacrifice himself no a Bobby Fish match will usually get both guys over after it's after it's done what did you think of um the Dijak TV title match um I expected more but it's 100% that the heel-face dynamic was off. Yeah. Um, I think that Dijak, I've said it many times, Dijak is a natural baby face. Um, and I think that most people can't wrap their head around that idea because he's so large. Um, but having Bobby Fish working over the leg, talking about taking his leg apart, but then kind of somewhat working baby face while the crowd was completely behind him and, and just going nuts. And I'm just like, the crowd wants to root for Dijak. Stop trying to turn him heel with this Prince Nana bullshit. He's got all of his boys, his hometown. Um, meanwhile, I did really enjoy the match, and I think I had it, you know, mid three star range, probably like three and a half to three and three quarter star. So, I mean, I did enjoy the match quite a bit, but I thought it could have been even better. Yeah, I was just asking because I haven't seen a lot of ROH this year, but I watched that match and what you were saying about you know having Dalton Castle feel like a star when he's you know facing Bobby Fish, I was wondering if you thought the same thing for Bobby Fish when he was wrestling Dijak. You know, did Dijak feel like a star when he was in the ring with Bobby Fish? Um, yes. Um, I would say yes, but it was it was that, as I said, the mix-up and the, and the issues with the heel-face dynamic. Because I think if Bobby Fish had stayed strong heel like he was at the start the whole way through, I think that it would have really made Dijak come across like a big deal by the end, even if he still lost. And just kind of the way they did it kind of soiled all of that. All right. So who is your 41? My 41 is Jack Gallagher. Um I didn't have him. I didn't have him on my list. Really? I did not have Jack on my list. Ah, interesting. Um, honestly, for Jack, it's it's about charisma with skill. Um, he's just so good. I am doing too many ums. I need to stop. He is so good at the world of sports style. He makes it look snug and and gritty and believable at times, and then also does stuff that's too fanciful and too exquisite to be believable. But when you do a nice hybrid mixture of the two, what it does is it creates almost like a an enchanting effect where as the crowd you go, well, 
that looked real and like believable that someone could do it and the same guy like pulled that off with ease and then he does this other thing that's kind of ridiculous and you go like but he did that other thing so he could do this too he's just kind of like super talented um Meanwhile, you turn around and he's a shoot fighter. He's had a couple of MMA matches that he won very handily, so that's very impressive as well. His character, his charisma, the fan love the fans love him. Um, some of the best matches with with Zach Gibson this year. Obviously, the guy is just so good. Um, everything in the cruiserweight classic where he stood out big time is is really important. Um, then you know he kind of a good chunk of his year kind of got sucked up. I think he'd be even higher on my list if he wasn't kind of in the in-between role a lot of guys get with when they're signing with WWE where it's kind of, oh, they're just sitting around doing nothing, and that's kind of where he's been. He had a, a middling feud towards the end of his run in progress, just kind of doing uh, a feud with the origin that didn't really matter and had some some flaws. It had some strong parts too, but it also had some flaws. Um, but yeah, I think he's just a guy who's poised to break out even bigger in 2017. Um, but that's not to say that he didn't have some great matches in 2006. And I think we'd be talking about Jack Gallagher as maybe progress champion or getting, you know, big shots in RPW and, and maybe doing more stuff in Fight Club or, oh God, they're doing another Tetsujin. That's going to be a big fucking deal to see him mix it up in there again after winning it last year. It's like, all that stuff that probably would have happened if he didn't kind of have that stall in the middle of the year because he's busy dealing with becoming a WWE superstar, which is then now going to be a big deal as he's already poised to look like the star of the cruiserweight division pretty instantly without even the WWE necessarily being behind him, which just goes again to show that even if his style is a acquired taste, according to some voices of wrestling out there, um, he is really enchanting. As I said to the crowd, people instantly kind of flock to this guy and love him. Yeah. I, definitely love Jack um, again match output is probably lower than I would have liked due to him not getting I guess as many chances in certain places he had a, he had a couple good progress matches a couple really good ones in fact one against Johnny Kidd that I really liked and then another one against Timothy Thatcher um, the CWC stuff I thought he was really good the opening round against Fabian Eichner the match versus Tazawa. So it's not like it's it's the fact that he I guess has such a limited um resume to give this year as far as his um output goes. But as a charisma as, as far as his charisma and personality goes, he's really extremely likable. And I think that if you pl- put him anywhere in the world, he still gets over. He just has a natural likability to him. So even if you're not a fan of the world of sports style, you think it's too cutesy, you think it looks fake, or you think whatever, I think Gallagher as a personality is just too likable to deny at this point. So yeah, I can totally see that pick. So um, my 41 is Jenny. Oh, nice. <laughs> so to me... Uh, I'm not sure. I, I'm i going to say she's the best heel in all of Europe. I'm going to say that. I'm not sure if I'm going to say she's the best heel in all of wrestling, but I will definitively say that she is the best heel in Europe. For now, 2016? Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. Now, a lot of people may not have heard of Jenny. She only started wrestling, or started like, like showing up on the progress shows last year. But Jenny 
is such a strong character that you would think that she's been doing this act for ages. You would think that she has been wrestling for years the way she is able to draw the ire of the audience. She walks through the crowd and you legitimately feel like she's going to fight somebody. Which is weird because you don't really get that with a lot of female performers. You don't get this intense dislike all the time. But for some reason, when Jenny walks through and they play that terrible remix of Turn My Swag On, (laughs) you just feel the hatred coming from the progress crowd. And she soaks it up. And it's not even like she's like a cocky laughing heel. He just comes out with a straight face and will just stand right in front of someone and slap them. It's something that you can't do, I guess, that much in 2016. But for Jenny, that act works. She is that heel that will walk up to an audience member, push them and slap them and think nothing of it. And I think her match output is actually really strong too. Like the few with Pollyanna, obviously whenever those two are in the ring, those two are trying to murder each other. Those are actually comparable to the Sasha and Charlotte matches where they're sloppy as hell, but they're violent as hell too. The Laura DiMatteo feud, which is a really well-told story of Jenny, you know, getting constantly mad at her underling stylist assistant or whatever, and taking her to the breaking point. And the reason why that feud works so well is because Jenny is such a strongly dislikable character. And with this, you know, NPS, I think this is the third installment of the Natural Progression Series in Progress. And this is going to be for their inaugural, you know, women's champion. There's no other person that should win that other than Jenny because that's the person that, unless WWE snatches her up for their women's tournament, which I'm thinking they might do that you build that division around Jenny because no one else gets that kind of reaction from the audience as far as being a heel goes. And look, people need to watch her stuff because when I say that she's the best heel in Europe, I 100% mean that. Yeah, no, it's like, pay attention. As you said, it feels real. Um, It reminds me similarly to where I was at on Sasha Banks, I think maybe two years ago, like 2004, or 2015, 2014, um, where I said that the only problem with how good that she is right now is that she's going to run out of people to work with that are better than her. Um, Luckily for Ginny, she's able to, because she's on the indies, um, go all over the place to wrestle different girls and even guys, which was the the biggest thing, as I said, with Sasha originally. was like, they're not going to let her wrestle guys, so she's not going to get any better, and she's going to stagnate because wrestling people better than you is what makes you better, and when you run out of people better than you, then you've got no one to work with. So, um, Ginny's already showed some talent in that she did have that series of matches with Laura DiMatteo that were very good and made Laura look great. Um, and that was with someone who was, you know, you know, green and still, you know, learning and still new. So she may not have as big of a drop off as Sasha has because I mean that's the issue with Sasha Banks. She dropped off because she doesn't have people to have, you know, fresh, exciting, new, cool stuff to do with. So Jenny is showing that maybe she'll be able to keep it going. I mean, the character work is phenomenal. It's flawless. As you said, she comes out and you believe every second and every bit of that hate towards the crowd. Um, 
and then her match output delivers every time. She hits a few moves that look awkward because she's a very kind of lanky, skinnier girl, and it's tough to... She's not, honestly, built for wrestling, and and that kind of sucks because she's just... The way she's built doesn't really work, but she makes it work, and... But that, like, that's the know, thing, is that plays into the, like, the fashionista character, where it's like, you know that when you like watch America's Next Top Model, a lot of it is like these tall, lanky, skinny girls. So when you see Jenny come out in these outfits that look like they belong on a runway, yeah, she doesn't look like she should be wrestling. But when she gets out there, you know, the reaction she gets, you know, damn sure proves that she belongs, you know, in this, you know, um, in this medium of entertainment. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and when you mention people that she may not run out of people to work with because she has the indies and other things going for her, I mean, imagine a Nixon Newell versus a Jenny feud. You know, the woman who I think is the best heel in all of Europe versus the person who I think behind Mandrews may be the best heel, maybe the best babyface in all of Europe. Like that yeah, would be no. th- like a Jenny versus Nixon feud would be tremendous. But yeah, if you haven't seen Jenny, I highly recommend checking her out. Uh, my number forty, Hideyoshi Kamatani. I do not have it. Okay. Well, to me, Kamatani is one of the top handful of baby faces in all of wrestling right now. He just has that kind of natural fire in him that makes you know makes you want to see him succeed. People that have that would be Sami Zayn or Kyrie Hojo that like exhibit that quality to the fullest. And I think Hideyoshi Kamatani is, like, right there. He's right on that tier. Super, super sympathetic seller. When he fires up and he gets his comeback, you buy into him and you want him to win so badly because he's the young guy that wants to prove himself. And this year was him, I guess, getting the ball and running with it. He was in the Strong Climb Finals against Yuji Ishikawa, And that was the story of Kamatani trying his hardest. Trying his hardest to win and beat this big bad mountain of a man. But Shuji just utterly destroys him to the point where you get scared for Kamatani and the referee wants to stop the match. It's so almost like uncomfortable the way Shuji beats the ever-living shit out of this kid to put him away. And then Kamatani gets the BJW Strong Heavyweight Championship shot against Okabayashi later on in the year after he loses the Strong Climb Finals. And this is the tale of Kamatani actually does it. The young kid who's full of fire and determined to make something of himself finally gets the job done and he beats the kingpin or one of the top guys in all of Japanese indies, Yuji Okabayashi. And it feels like he belongs in that class. Even though he struggled to get there and struggled to make it to the top, it feels like he belongs in that conversation. So it's a tale of two matches that really got him on the list because it combined the overarching story of Hideyoshi Kamatani. But even then, he's always a guy that's consistently good in tag matches and six-man tags or even like a mid-card match against someone that's not really on his level. 
So he's a guy that I think has really strong high-end stuff. He's one of the best baby faces in all of wrestling. And even when he's not in big matches, he's still consistently entertaining and one of the best guys in trios and tag matches. Yeah, and he's a guy that, um, from some of the stuff that I saw late in 2015, I was definitely interested in, but I didn't watch, I didn't keep up with him. And I don't keep up with strong or with BJW as much as I'd like. Um, the Shuji match and the Okabayashi match I saw both of and really loved, but I couldn't, I couldn't get him on the list and he was, he was kind of making my cuts, but I couldn't get him on the list based on, you know, the handful of matches that I've seen from him this year. But he, I feel like I should watch more and I, I probably really should because everything I've watched of him, I've always really liked. But the problem is that I've always felt like his matches felt like they were over delivering and I almost didn't give him the credit that maybe I should be giving him. And I don't know if that's crazy. Like I, th- I see him as the kind of young boy, new Japan guy. Or not New Japan, Big Japan guy. And sometimes I think like, oh, he's being carried because he's working with such phenomenal workers. And do you think he's kind of filling the role at this point where I shouldn't see that and I should just see that he's bringing it to the table himself? Yeah, honestly, like that Shuji Ishikawa match, like I don't think that match is nearly as compelling if Hideyoshi Kamatani isn't the one taking that beating because he gets his ass kicked and it looks like it's on the verge of murder. That's not even an exaggeration. <laughs> Tim, you've seen that match. Shuji beats the living hell out of him to the point where the referee is like jumping up and down. He wants to stop that match. And Kamatani keeps kicking out and keeps kicking out. And it doesn't get to the point of ridiculousness. It gets to the point of, oh my God, this kid is so stupid. Why won't he stay down? And I don't know. I think when a performance is that strong and emotional that you kind of have to look at it from that perspective too that if he isn't the one taking the beating that I'm not sure anyone, that the match is that good yeah no I can definitely see that I mean that match was something else like, like yeah, Shuji was murdering him but I feel like I don't know at that point after Strong Climb had been so good it felt like the running theme though was just that Shuji was murdering everybody but yeah. I guess you're right that it was definitely something special to that that murder just because of Kamatani getting killed so well. Um, yeah. I'm going to have to keep up on him more because I think he's young. You know, I think he hasn't even been wrestling for five years yet. Um, and yeah, so he's a guy. Super young. He's part of that, you know, crop of guys in Japan where this year it felt like Japan was really giving their young guys the ball. Follow, like finally following suit after Okada gave, I mean, after New Japan gave Okada the ball four years ago, it seemed like Kamatani, Miyahara, um, Kanesuke Takashita were all being given chances. And we were given these young champions in, J- in Japan this year. And I think Kamatani probably had the strongest performances like in those two matches than those two did, even though I have Kento Miyahara higher. So, okay, yeah. So, who is your 40? My number 40 is Kachihiko Nakajima. Um, he did not make my list. No, okay. Um, I thought that Nakajima has always been kind of a guy who gets not overlooked, but just doesn't isn't able to get out there as much. Um, when he started putting everything together and I think was really ready to shine, that's kind of when the Kensuke office stuff split. And unfortunately that's been a big hindrance to his career is being tied to not a poisoned brand, but a brand that's just not out there as much with the kind of diamond ring stuff. Um, 
But he turns around this year and I think kind of is working some more in Noah and being treated like a big deal there. Um, comes in for the G1 and was just fucking almost every one of his matches was great. I mean, that B block of G1 was just fire the whole way through. Um, then you're finishing out the year with him, you know, challenging for the championship. And Noah is in major disarray, but I just think Nakajima has been so, so great. And like one of the only things that's always enjoyable on the Noah shows, no matter what's going on. And then it just sucks that that Noah new Japan feud that looked like it was going to be amazing and, and kind of look really seemed to me to be leading to a Shibata Nakajima big time matchup. Um, got, you know, it's legs cut out from underneath it because I think Nakajima is a guy who could be a big deal mixing it up in the never division with guys like Shibata. It could help freshen up that whole, you know, side or that whole part of the new Japan roster as right now, it's kind of getting stale with the same guys who want to beat each other up, just beating each other up all the time. You can get some more guys in there and mix it up, have some fresh faces and Nakajima would be the perfect fit. Cause I don't, I've never understood why he's not up at that level. And I know he's still young, but he's never, I don't think he's ever been seen as a guy who's at the same level as the rest of those guys. And he, I think he's just as good as like a, a Shibata or a Kenta or, you know, I mean, like all those guys who are known for their bocce, bocce, hard hit style type guys. Um, I'd like to see him even maybe going out and, and getting involved in all Japan more or big Japan or even, you know, DDT or something. I think there's all places he could fit in more, but he's got the loyalty issue with Kensuke that kind of affects his career negatively. Um, and I could totally see not having him on your list, especially as someone who follows Japan more regularly like yourself. Um, because, you know, he does have visibility issues, and um, but I think that his output for his matches never disappoints. So that's, like, a big part of why he made my list. He was in, like, my bottom ten of guys that I cut. So he was, if it was, like, a top 60, he would be, like, 58 or 60 or something like that. Uh, I really like Nakajima. I really do love the guy. I've loved him for a while. I think he's tremendous. And like you said, at that style, you know, stiff strike. We're going to stand here and have this pissing contest to see who hits harder style that Kenta, Shibata, and other people like to employ. Nakajima is just as good at it as those guys are. But no one ever talks about it because of the exposure issues or because he's always attached to a brand that isn't conducive to him getting exposure. Um, I really loved his G1. The thing with that is that you mentioned the B block was fire the whole way through. And that's the thing is that because everyone in the B block was great, it's also hard to pinpoint where Nakajima exactly stands out in that crop. So when it's a block with Kenny Omega, Tetsuya Naito, Evil, Katsuyori Shibata, Yuji Nagata, Yoshihashi, it's like so many people that it's almost hard to say where you can say Nakajima had a better G1 than those guys. And the Noah stuff, I really enjoyed the Minoru Suzuki match from December 2nd that just aired recently, even though it was clipped. It's like 24 minutes of a 37-minute match. I think it's really great, but I haven't enjoyed his Noah stuff that much. And part of it is due to the fact that Noah just has this really weird obsession of having their main event matches go way longer than they need to. So is me being turned off by that. Um, even though I love Nakajima so much that I'm just not willing to sit through 
a 35 minute match full of Suzuki Goon bullshit. So even if he had good GHC title matches this year, I haven't seen enough of them to try to justify a spot for him on the list. Yeah, no, I can't argue with that. Um, so what is that? Is that your 39 now? Your 39. I thought you my did 39. Your, yeah, you did your 40. That was Nakajima, well, right? Nakajima was my 40, yeah. You want me to do 39? Yeah. All right. My 39 is John Schuyler. Um huh. I don't know if people would expect that from me, just based on my taste and everything. But um, I think that John Schuyler is a phenomenal worker um, in every way. He knows how to get a lot of emotion out of the crowd, depending on what crowd he's at. Um, He is that carpenter role, that journeyman they talk about, you know, from the old days. He's that good hand. Uh, That's why they trust him in NXT, working green as grass guys like Riddick Moss. And he can carry them to believable matches. I think... um, I think that was the match. I think I saw it was Riddick Moss, and I saw it, and I was like, oh, this kid's pretty damn good. And then you realize later on that he, you know, I think that's the guy that injured Kenta. So it's like he's not that good. It was it was John Schuyler. Um, tagging with Corey Hollis, who's a guy who... Corey Hollis should have made my list probably, but he did not. John Schuyler stands out to me because um, he's he was the glue holding together the all of the feud in PWX with... Um, uh, with the experience, he was the leader, is the main faction. They blow it off with this big cage match, uh, the War Games match that was just huge and heated, and he brings all the emotion and the heat. And while I think Corey Hollis is is phenomenal, at times he feels a little jokey. And I know that he's a very good worker. Um, he, you know, Corey Hollis is great too. But I just feel John Skyler, everything feels real. Um, he had an amazing match with um, Anthony Henry this year that really made Anthony Henry feel like a big star. Um, he was in the SCI again this year, just like he was last year. Um, and I, I try to even remember what matches he had, honestly, because he, had, he, uh, got, he got limited in the first round. He faced Jimmy. Yeah, Raven. yeah, he had Jimmy Raven the first round, which was um, his only match. Kinda, he got eliminated. Yeah, it was a. It was the only match that he had, and then I think he did, he was in the three way tag the next night, kind of joking around playing the um, yeah the, um, the comedy relief. Yeah. But in the match with Jimmy Rave, it was the opener for the tournament, and it set the tone for the entire tournament. and And it was really important to have him there for that. Um, he turns around, he loses the title to Jake Manning in probably the best match in the best match that Jake Manning has ever had, and disappears from PWX for a while. Meanwhile, during that time, he pops up on CWF Mid Atlantic and takes a uh, Trevor Lee to the limit in a in a just a really great another epic title defense for Trevor Lee that goes on to Trevor Lee's docket, but it's all John Schuyler the whole way through. Pops back in to uh, PWX right at the you know most opportune moment for the X16 tournament. Fills in a spot that was that was vacated, and now he's like ba- full babyface, and he's playing great babyface. The crowd's super into him, um, and so yeah, I'm just kind of like John Skyler. For me, they call him the Southern Savior. I really see it. He is this this really important glue that he can play up and down the card anywhere you need to put him. He makes everybody look great. He, you know, he, like I said, he can open the show and set the tone putting over Jimmy rave, or he can be your heavyweight champion who believe, who you believably see as this, you know, 
unstoppable top of the heap kind of that final roadblock that if you can get past him that's a big fucking deal um but you know he doesn't just give that up to everybody he can take a young guy like anthony henthery and shine him up to where now he's a believable star as he goes on to win the tournament um so yeah it's just for me, I think John Schuyler's a guy. I don't know if he's overlooked. I don't hear people talking about him that much outside of you know our circles. Um, but I think he deserves more credit for just how talented he is at all aspects of the game. Schuyler didn't make my list. And I agree with everything you said about him being a glue guy that can shine somebody up. And he can do anything that you want him to on any spot of the card. I really like the Trevor Lee match from CWF, and it's probably one of the more unheralded matches of Trevor Lee's reign. I really like the Rave match from SCI. I really like the Zack Sabre Jr. match from PWX X16. The main thing my scholar isn't on my list is I wasn't really a fan of the PWX main event scene this year. So the Stable War obviously with experience and the revolt if it's if that's your main program and you're the champion in C I mean in PWX it's hard for me to put you on my list so because I wasn't into that main event picture for pretty much all of that year all of this year I couldn't find a way to justify him being on my list so I really like Skyler I agree with everything you said about him being a glue guy but his main event stuff in PWX where he was being pushed the hardest left a lot for me to be desired yeah I can see that so what's next my 39 yeah so my 39 is Asuka and I'm assuming you do not have I do not she was one of my tough kind of principal I'm not going to have WWE people cuts um, she was one of the ones where I wanted to leave her on the list, and I was kind of almost going to change my my rule about WWE workers for her, but I just couldn't do it. Right. So, Asuka brings something to that NXT women's scene that they never had. I've been, I've been following NXT pretty much since the rebranding um, from, from FCW, and I saw that women's division from the beginning. And it was a lot of strong characters, but no one ever really felt dangerous. But when Asuka comes in, it's a complete game changer. She comes in with this different style, obviously coming from Japan, and the striking, being trained by Fujiwara, having this you know background in submission wrestling and jujitsu, and being able to do that stuff. She came across as almost, and it's going to sound bad for some people because they're both Asian, but I really see her as the female version of Tajiri, where she comes across as, even though she's not the biggest, the way she carries herself, it's creepy. It's unnerving. She smiles at you when you hit her or slap her in the face, but that's because she knows that she's about to rip your arm off or kick your head off. And she's done really good squash matches on NXT, which I think is a really unsung quality that she has to her, where she can convincingly blow through jobbers in a way that I don't think any other women on the roster could. Excuse me. And then she um has really good big matches, too, when she's been given the spotlight. 
So that TakeOver Dallas match, where I think a lot of people underrated that match because it went over, because it went after Zayn versus Nakamura. And obviously that's a really tough act to follow when that was the main draw of that show. That's a really tough act to follow, and I think they went out there and did their job. And their job was Asuka's going to go out there and convincingly beat Bailey and snatch the heart from NXT. She went out there and did that, laid a complete beat down on Bailey. Then she has the Nia Jax match, which is the best Nia Jax match, which is the best match Nia Jax has had so far in WWE, I think. And then she has a rematch with Bailey at Brooklyn, and that was fantastic storytelling with Asuka being this unbeatable mountain and Bailey trying her hardest and coming, you know, undone when she's this happy go lucky baby face. Bailey's firing up, trying to slap Asuka in the face and stand toe to toe with the best striker in the entire company. And Asuka takes the heart away from NXT again. This time she makes the heart of heart of NXT stop beating. So Asuka has this definitive way in the, how she wrestles where once Asuka finishes you, it feels like you're not coming back. It feels like your soul got snatched from you because you're nowhere near her level. And I just like that level of dangerousness, her presence, her aura that she projects on top of her um, in-ring output. So Asuka, I think she's just tremendous. All right. I mean, I can't argue with that. I think she's. I think that she definitely brings something special. I just, again, it was more of a principled stance. Is the only reason why she's not here. Right. So, my thirty-eight is Eric Royal. Eric Royal was definitely making his rounds on my list. Um, he almost got there. Let me see, sixty-five. So he was almost in the fifty. He's just a little bit below. All right, so here's another person where the majority of their case is based on presence. There's a few people on the independent level that when they walk out, they feel like stars. Chris Hero comes to mind. Marty's Girl comes to mind. Zack Sabre Jr. comes to mind. Matt Riddle. Guys that feel like stars when they walk out. They have this aura that radiates from them that makes them feel like the biggest thing on the card. And it's funny that a guy that no one really pays attention to that much has that same quality where when you're watching CWF and you see Eric Royal come out, he feels like the biggest deal in the room. And that's funny to say when when Trevor Lee is there, but Eric Royal somehow feels like a bigger star than Trevor Lee when he walks out. Eric Royal has this confidence, this swagger, this boisterousness, this overconfidence in himself that really leads itself to believability. And he's done it in two ways this year. At first, he was a ba- in a babyface tag team with Ray Kandrak that did tremendous work. That match with um, Kandrak and Royal against Everett and Lee. Tremendous, tremendous tag team match. But then Royal turns heel. And he's coming out to like schoolboy Q and he's like even more cocky than ever and he just has this shit eating grin on his face all the time and his Weaver Cup run where he's um facing Chip Day had that match with Smith Garrett where he was targeting Smith Garrett's neck and then the finals of the Weaver Cup telling a great story being the dominant heel for the underdog Nick Richards to overcome and that was great because Eric Royal has that credibility (laughs) 
being the longest reigning CWF champ ever, Eric Royal was the perfect guy to give Nick Richards a win over because it felt like someone that was the biggest star possible for Richards to overcome on his way up to the top. So I thought Royal was tremendous there. And then in the title match against Trevor Lee, Eric Royal was super aggressive from the beginning, taking it to Trevor Lee in a way that Trevor Lee hadn't had it taken hadn't had it taken to him before. And I just think that Royal, as a babyface and as a heel, and even in Nova Pro, Royal always feels like a star. And I think that when you always feel important more than I guess your actual role on the show is, that's always something I think is very impressive. Yeah, no, I think totally hit that all right. And I think if I had been paying attention to CWF Mid-Atlantic full-time earlier, um, he's a guy who'd probably be higher up on my list. Uh, but I was, you know, kind of picking and choosing early on in the year and not watching every episode all the way through. Um, but he always definitely stands out and, and feels real, which I think is good. He plays the character that he is always just feels like, someone I would know and just like, Oh yeah, I know that guy loud, kind of loud mouth, cocky asshole. And the shit that he says just comes across legitimate. So I, I definitely love that. Um, so my 38, as we stick with the theme of the CWF mid Atlantic crew is Andrew Everett. Um, a big reason why Andrew Everett is on my list here at 38 and not maybe lower and all this is that he is in my match of the year this year so far. His defense, his title attempt at Trevor Lee um, was phenomenal. Um, his match with Trevor Lee in PWG was just as well not just as good but was like a mini version of that which I thought was really funny at the time as I watched it. I was like this is like kind of just like a subtly not as epic version of kind of a similar match with similar storytelling, which I think is really cool the way that they could tone that down. Um, Andrew Everett, you know, he can have, he's had a lot of really cool spot festy flying matches with other guys, but in CWF, he really gets to shine having, um, good matches against guys like Royo and, and, and that match sticks out to me as him kind of carrying and playing dominant kind of face throughout the match, which was really good for him to like kind of show that off. Then meanwhile, um, stuff in, in AAW, it's like another reason why there's the four way with Everett, Trevor, Cedric and Moose. That was at the time was like the hoot of the year, the kind of spot fest, crazy wild, match of the year for me at that time because it was just so insane all the stuff that they put together and all the wild spots and everything and AAW then becomes known for doing those kind of matches and and stuff keeps topping it throughout the year but at the time that was like fuck that was a wild ass just spot fest match Andrew Everett's crazy spots were were a big part of what was great in there um he wins the CWF Rumble with a really cool storyline as it goes along with uh, Roy Wilkins kind of screwing him out of it, and he comes back. and He's a guy that you can definitely always get behind. I think the crowd loves him. He's just got natural charisma. He doesn't cut much of a promo, but when he needs to, he can. He's not a great promo, but he's not like super awkward. He's just he's Andrew. He's a little weird. Um, he's a little out there, but not awkward, I guess. It's kind of... If you're going to compare it, it's something kind of like uh, Paul London, where like it was never awkward, it was never um, like he was stuttering or stammering or having trouble. It was more just he's kind of a different cat and he kind of stands out because he's a little bit weird, but it's not that he's, you know, 
uncomfortable because he's cutting a promo like someone like daniel bryan watch an early daniel bryan promos and it has an awkward uncomfortableness to it um that's not the case with him it's more of he's just not the kind of guy you're used to talking to um so yeah i think him and trevor as a tag team are wrestling against each other just always bona fide gold and and that's a big part of what gets him to this point on the list but just a just a guy who's not quite a utility worker, but in some ways kind of is a, a minor utility worker who doesn't get credit for just how how good he can be at at doing stuff other than just flips. He can do other stuff, and I think he gets kind of underappreciated for that. And I kind of can't believe now that I've been talking about him this whole time that you didn't have him on your list uh, higher than this or somewhere coming down the line. No, I didn't have him on my, on my list. And I feel like I slightly underrated his output this year, but... When I looked at everything that I kept track of, the only thing that I had re- could remember was the Trevor Lee match from July, which granted is my number two match of the year right now. Or number three, probably. Yeah, my number three match of the year right now. And the tag match against Kandrak and Royal. And I've enjoyed Everett. I've enjoyed him in AAW, where him and Trevor are kind of goofy figures there. I really enjoyed the Trevor versus Ever match in PWG, which I think was the best match on that show. But yeah, I just didn't think enough was there for me to try to justify Andrew Ever on my list, even though this year I kind of had a turnaround on him with how good he was in that Trevor Lee match. Okay, I can see that. All right. So what are we on now? Uh, this should be your 37, I think. My 37. Unless you want me to do mine. So my 37 is Anthony Henry. Would you Okay. Um, I don't think I have him on my list. Oh, okay. Yeah. He's a guy who I think probably should have and probably was just an oversight, honestly. I probably could have found a spot for him and I just didn't think about it. But I know that I have him here somewhere. He's probably in the like mid-60s. Let me see where I have him. Yeah, he was currently at oh 60 even so yeah okay well anthony henry is a guy that i think has really took advantage of the breakout of the southern indie scene over the past year more than anyone and i think that showed up more in pwx where they were giving him sort of these you know indie big names to buzz through on his way to going to the top or not even buzz through just names to kind of give Anthony credibility so he's facing Sammy Callahan he's facing Matt Riddle he's facing Roderick Strong he's facing Zack Sabre Jr. he's facing Drew Gulak he's facing all these guys in PWX and it always feels like Anthony Henry is a star on that level it never feels like Anthony Henry's out of place which is something that is admirable for a guy that's never been on that big of a stage. The fact that he can hold his own with guys that are on a much more uh, national level than him or have just been exposed more. So so I really, really emphasize that when I think about Henry is the fact that with more known guys, Henry doesn't feel like he's ever out of place. And I thought he had a really strong Scenic City Invitational run that he was the MVP of that tournament for me. That opening round match with Leo Rush was absolutely fantastic. One of the best 
not even a sprint. It was a really well structured too, but that pace is super frenetic. Uh, the second round match with Billy Buck, I thought was fantastic, and then he's really great in that final with Hero, Gunnar Miller, and Jimmy Rave, where once Anthony Henry gets going and he is getting all his offense in, Anthony Henry looks like a million bucks. And again, he's in the ring with Chris Hero and Jimmy Rave, and Anthony Henry is like arguably feeling like the biggest star in that match, which is something that a lot of people couldn't do. So I think that's really good of him as well. And he's had other matches on YouTube that I think are gems that people haven't seen. That Jimmy Rave match from Flatline in February. Really well-structured match. Has a lot of stalling, but that just goes around with the Jimmy Rave character. So I thought that was really well done. A match with Rob Black that was really good as well. A match with Timmy Luke Retton that I liked a lot. So I think Anthony Henry has the match output. But it's the fact that when he's in the ring with bigger names, Henry still feels like a big deal to me. And I think that for a guy on his exposure level, the fact that he never feels out of place is a big positive for me. Yeah, again, a guy who I think could have definitely been higher on my list, but just something. something. I feel like something was missing a little bit. I think just in the... I mean, it was. It feels like this should be his breakout year, and he didn't break out. And I mean, that's partially to do with other things. But he really only worked small. Some of the same smaller indies that he's been working the whole time. I mean, he did the evolve shot, and it felt like that should have he, he became on, more, and it didn't. He worked freelance, um, and he worked CZW. And I thought he was really good in what he was given this year at CZW at Down with the Sickness in a four way, I believe. And yeah. then that best of the best where he was in a triple threat. I thought Anthony Henry looked really good, really good too. And it's another thing where even if it's a promotion where he's not a regular, like a CZW or like a freelance, Anthony Henry still jumps off the page and how he controls a match and how he portrays himself, the charisma that he has, that it's always going to, it's always going to be something that gets over with the crowd. A guy that goes balls to the wall has really nice-looking strikes. It can do crazy dives when warranted. It's always going to get over with the crowd, and then he has the charisma to boot. Yes, no, definitely, definitely see it, and I think that 2017 will be a big year for him, too. Right. So, my 36 is Jonathan Gresham. Oh, I think I need to hit my 37. I thought you already did your 37. <laughs> no, no, no. My 37 is Heidi Lovelace. Oh, okay. My bad, then. So, no, my... I don't have Heidi. <laughs> Don't have Heidi. Okay, so Heidi Lovelace is just phenomenal. Ragdoll selling, um, then she, you know, playing the Sally Stitches and Freelance, having great matches. Um, everything she does in Shakara that I've seen was phenomenal. The feud with uh, Kobe Durst in A1 is like one of the coolest little things and like the only thing that I really cared about in that company. Um, she turned around and had a great match with Josh Alexander when he came back, uh, where I think that she really sold just such an amazing seller, dynamic seller. Um, matches with Kimberly that are great. Matches tagging with Kimberly that are also great. If I was paying more attention to Shimmer, I'd probably have even more to say about her. But I mean, um, the finals for the Heart of Shimmer title, I think it was when they first started it. It was her and Candice LeRae and Nicole Savoy, who Nicole Savoy is a girl that probably should have got on my list, but I just haven't, again, because I'm not paying attention to Shimmer, I haven't seen enough of her. But she's younger, and I think that. Heidi and Candace did a great job of really putting her over as she was winning this title going forward from there. 
Um, so I just think she did a good job, like just a phenomenal job there making this girl a star um, out of that match. And, and yeah, and then, as I said, switching over to playing the Sally Stitches character, which is only slightly different than Heidi Lovelace, but it's still definitely a change. And she does a great job of playing a, a different character. Um, and then, yeah, in Chikara, she plays a, it's a slightly different character. It's a little bit less, I guess, aggressive. There's not much to her character, but, you know, there's enough. Um, then, you know, she's doing kind of a feud with Jessica Havoc that that leads to a decent I Quit match on the recent AAW show. And it's like, Jessica Havoc's a girl who I haven't really liked any of her matches. So having um, Heidi be able to kind of really make her matches more enjoyable and more watchable has been appreciated over the past year or so, where they've had a couple of little interactions here and there. So I just think Heidi's... You know, as I said, one of the best sellers, one of the best bumpers, um, really dynamic, hot, fiery, you know, underdog kind of comebacks. And then can also have just these wild, crazy, fun tag matches. Uh, Think of like Kimberly versus the Hooligans, where you could totally see it just being kind of bullshit. But no, it's a lot of fun. And and she does a good job of doing intergender. Not a huge fan of intergender personally, but she does a good job of playing it um, believably. She doesn't do a lot of stuff that kind of breaks the reality of the fact that she's a girl. She really holds her offense to just stuff that you can kind of buy as she has to work at using quick pace, fast strikes to finally stagger guys down. And I just think she's, yeah, super dynamic, awesome, awesome worker. So, yeah, that's Heidi Lovelace. I like Heidi a lot, and I probably should have considered her more for the list than I actually did. Um, I mean, I don't have any argument against her, really. I just don't think that when I sat down and put down the people that I was considering that Heidi was someone that popped in, popped in mind. I didn't watch much of the Alpha 1 stuff, so I think that maybe a part of it where if that feud with Kobe Durst was any good or if it was good, then I probably would have found a way to squeeze her onto my list. But And I'm not watching Chikara, so it's not something that is on my radar either. So If those are two places where she's been working frequently and I haven't been paying attention, then it would have been hard for me to try to justify a spot for her on the list, but I've really enjoyed her um, in AW. Whenever I've seen her and other promotions, I think she's one of the best um, females going at working intergender matches. She's always just a re- she's just a tremendous seller, like you said. So it's always going to work. Um, yeah, I have no problem with Heidi. So yeah, kudos on that pick. Uh, so who was your thirty six? My thirty six is Freddie Ahai. I don't have Fred on my list. Wow. What is wrong with you? Huh? Um, <laughs> okay, so here's the thing with Fred is that I didn't... I don't know. When I looked at his year, it, for me, when I compiled it, and then he'll probably be higher on my We Don't Know Wrestling 100 ballot. But as far as like everything that I'm taking into consideration, Yehai wasn't the guy that jumped off the page for me. Yeah, I mean, I can't blame you. And he's a guy that even... Even I was like, I think the reason why he even got where he was was that I was like begrudgingly looking at people's names as I'm has Yehai like kind of figured out where I'm going to put him, and I kept going like, like you know, I look at Gallagher and I'm like, ah, I can't have Jack Gallagher above Freddie Yehai, and you know, I mean, it was that. It was more of that, just looking at it, going like, no, 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 he's better than, and, and he really is. I mean, he is. such good matches. The, the hero match, I think, stands out as a totally different match than anything else he had in this year, um, getting worked over by this bully. Um, God, I don't even remember if the Colby Carino match was 2006 or 2015, or 2015 but then he kind of... That was 2016, I believe, yeah. 
Yeah, he plays the opposite side in that match as he's the bully against the younger kids, so it just shows he can go back and forth. Um, he's a guy who I've been watching for years, and 2017 was probably the year where he really broke out the most, I'd say, mixing in a lot more character work, um, but not toning down his, his in-ring technical style that much. I mean, he's still definitely working, but implementing these stomps and, and this kind of unique offense in that regard, playing up the character, I mean... One of the most over things he's got is just going, he's in big trouble. And it really works. The crowd loves it and they're super into it. So it just goes like, you know, I just watched the uh, the tag match with him and um, Williams versus Ricochet and Casa. And Ricochet does this front flip and lands on his knees in a pose to get into the ring. And then the crowd goes wild. And then Yehai just points at him and shouts, You're, he's in trouble. And the crowd goes even crazier. So it's just, it's just smart working right there as you go, oh, look at what he's pulling off already. He doesn't need to kill himself. Um, had Darius Carter's best match in Tier 1. I know that it's not a big deal, but hey, that's a little feather in his cap, able to carry a shitty worker like Darius Carter. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, he's playing the ace of uh, FIP, and I think he's been doing a good job there it's kind of a mid-level ace role i guess you could compare it to matt hardy in the 2009s as the ecw champion he's kind of the the top guy in the underneath brand and i think he does a really good job there um as he i think probably had to slip into that role out of nowhere with caleb Connolly leaving a little bit unsuspected as he went to TNA and I don't think they expected that. They put the belt on Yehai and he kind of hit the ground running um, having some great defenses where um, he plays up kind of not just being a great worker but also being a smart worker and using his brain to win matches. So I think that Yehai is about as well-rounded as you can get and not make it into the top 25 personally. I think he's a guy who just um, has it all. Charisma, work, uh, different styles, heel, baby face, underdog um, on top. He can do it all. So I just think he's a kind of a can't-miss guy. And I think the only thing that keeps him probably off people's list is because he's not in a lot of places push this prominently and he's seen as underneath ace or you know mid-level top guy he's not treated he's not treated in, in any high profile indies as a big deal so unfortunately that's kind of his lot in life right now yeah i would admit that i haven't seen any fip this year so if that's something that is boosting yehai's case i just haven't gotten around to seeing it I've kind of hand with FIP this, FIP this year, so it never, it's never something I got around to. I like Yehai a lot. You mentioned him just doing the he's in big trouble thing. And it goes back to even his offense, where his a lot of his offense is like just stepping on hands and stepping on knees. He's sim- it's like it's simple stuff, but because it's so simple and because of the way he does it, it gets over. Which is he's not doing anything that is revolutionary or is reinventing the wheel he's doing something as simple as saying he's in big trouble or stepping on somebody's hand but he's making it feel uniquely his own that no one else could probably pull that off because Yehai is so unique that his offense the way he does things the way he carries himself no one else could really do you mentioned him in that match with a hero for Mania Weekend he has more stuff to boast too like that TJP match from Evolve 61. Tremendous match. That was the Cruiserweight Classic qualifying match. That was, I thought, was excellent. There's the Zack Sabre Jr. match that from not that long ago, maybe a couple of months ago. That was a really good match of Yehai playing underdog again, 
against a Zack Sabre Jr. that was a bit more heelish than usual. So he's really good at being that fiery underdog baby face. He has tremendous facial expressions, which is something I don't think he gets enough credit for, actually, even from some of his biggest fans, that Yehai's facial expressions are among the best in wrestling. And then the Kobe Carino match, which is something that I did not expect at all in this amazingly smart-worked match where Yehai is vicious, going after Kobe Carino's hand. And Yehai is in a way, in a way there, you haven't really seen him like that. Where he all and all of Evolve have been a babyface, but right now he is just utterly destroying Kobe Carino's hand. And he's just really a master at working over a limb too. So he didn't make my list. I kind of feel I feel bad that Yehai didn't make it because I love him a lot. But yeah, I totally see why you um had him there. I guess I am honestly surprised surprised you didn't have him higher. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I could definitely see Dylan Hales having him in the top ten. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of people, I think, that have him very high. Uh, another guy that, I'm not sure if you have this guy higher, but my 36 is Jonathan Gresham. Uh, I most certainly do have him much higher. Okay, so we'll talk about him later. I know this person you don't have, my 35 is Barbara Camarnario. Um. Ooh, you know that he was a tough cut. That's no joke. He was a guy that I really wanted to get into my top 50, but he ended up right below Eric Royal at 67. So he was, yeah, he was trying to make it on the list. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad he did well for you. But Cavernario to me is the most consistently creative guy other than Hechi Sarah right now in Lucha, I think. Where... He's a guy that broke out in 2014. 2015, he had some great stuff, too. In 2016, he just continues to be great. He had the two Volador Jr. matches that I don't think anyone really thought that was going to be as psychologically sound as they were. But I thought, even though they were kind of spot fest, they were still really strong matches. I think that even... Outside of that, he had a really strong feud with Ray Kameda that included a hair versus hair match and a title match. And I gave both of those the same rating. I think I had them both at four and a half. But what it comes down to is that Cavernario is just so creative as a worker that it didn't matter who he was facing, that everyone there, it just felt like he was just that more creative as a worker and even in the indies when he faced when he's in Caralucha and he's facing Black Terry and Black Terry who's in the 60s and Cavernario who's in his early 20s it was something where it didn't matter who he was facing that Cavernario is going to make it work even if it's someone that's more than twice his age uh he was in a great tag match this year um it was Cavernario and Hechicero versus Terry and Bestia 666. And it's another great thing where Cavanario can work tag matches. He's consistently a great guy in trios matches. Uh, I don't know. I really just think the guy is always doing something interesting. And there's something that matters a lot to me when in Lucha, there aren't a lot of guys that can keep it interesting that much. There aren't people that are willing to switch it up that so often because when you're in Lucha... Once something works for you, you get kind of complacent. You know something works. You're not going to try to change it up. 
And I think Cavernario is just always someone that tries to reach for bigger heights and tries to get even more creative in what he does. Yeah, no, and I think he definitely stands out. As I said, there's a reason why I'm trying to get him. I was trying to get him on my list, but as a Lucha guy, I haven't seen enough of his stuff. But his matches, to me, again, always kind of feel special and stand out on Lucha shows to where I can appreciate and enjoy them. And um, it doesn't kind of all the other stuff that kind of makes it harder for me to pay attention doesn't seem to happen in his matches. So, yeah, he's, I think, a guy who could also probably do well outside of lucha a guy who could probably get over i mean he did get over in japan early in the year i think he could get over in the states um i don't know what the deal is with why he doesn't get used more other places other than just being a full-time cmlo guy and he's, being signed he's, he's also in school he's um oh geez yeah, yeah he's yeah he's in, also in college so he's like balancing okay. like being a cmll and then balancing being a student too Okay, so that's why he doesn't do a lot of stuff all over the place because I think he's a guy that would get over pretty much anywhere pretty instantly. So, yeah. Um, if if he ever decides to go full time in wrestling, I mean, meanwhile he may not. Maybe he's smart and he'll just get out of the business before his body <laughs> falls apart. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's a guy who I think if I paid more attention to Lucha, he'd easily be in my top fifty. We'll return after these messages. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Voice of Ring of Honors, Kevin Kelly here. I just want to make sure you're all subscribed to all of our great feeds here at Place to Be Nation. Now, it's really easy to do. Just head to iTunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search for and subscribe to the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, Place to Be Nation pop feed, pro wrestling only feed, and of course, the Kevin Kelly Show feed, which includes the full archives of my podcast. Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And of course, as always, enjoy all the great action of Ring of Honor Wrestling and everything presented to you on PlaceToBeNation.com. PlaceToBeNation's JT Rizzero here, and I want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaceToBeNation.com, and we offer them to you across two great feeds. On the PlaceToBeNation wrestling feed, you can check out Scott Criscolo and me on the Mothership, the Place to Be podcast with our famous Vintage Vault pay-per-view reviews. PTBN also covers current-day wrestling with the smash hit clotheslines and headlines our steady veteran main event, and the beloved monthly pay-per-view reaction shows with immediate feedback on all pro wrestling super shows. Relive wrestling's past with our monthly pay-per-view rewind series led by Ben Morse, the always contentious Dangerous Alliance podcast, and Survey Says, a fun look back at the good, bad, and ugly of WCW. On our very popular Place of the Nation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Rank and File, NBA Team, Lucha Undead, Geek and Sassy, and a veritable podcast heaven for comic fans with hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, and Imaginary Stories. Subscribe to both of those feeds on iTunes and rate and leave feedback for us as well. All of these shows plus others available at PlaceToBeNation.com where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlaceToBeNation.com backslash Amazon when doing your online shopping and download our free Place to Be Vintage Vault refresh ebooks via the links on the right-hand side of our site. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Rock, Rhode Island and Fall River, Massachusetts, TheHistoryOfWrestling.com and Scott Keats Blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr as well. PlaceToBeNation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. The 
PWO PTBN feed has changed its name, now known simply as Pro Wrestling Only, so it should be easier to find and indeed to say. All of your favorite shows are still here, including Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Kayfabe, Titans of Wrestling, Tag Teams Back Again, This Week in Wrestling, and many, many more, including our full archives of tremendous content. So make sure you subscribe to the Pro Wrestling Only feed today. Now back to the show. Alright, so um, you're 35. My 35 is David Starr. I don't have David Starr. Whoa! That's a shocker. Um, David Starr has been able to do everything this year. Had um, God, this is another one. I think it pretty, has to be this year, honestly, right? He's the rookie. Um, phenomenal match with Riddle. Um, turns around and he can have great matches with Joey Janela. Um, great match with Eddie Edwards recently earlier on in the year. Just super good stuff and beyond as he stands out every time underneath. Um, tag matches with uh, Shane Strickland in WXW instantly gets over there as well. Works the Ambition Tour um, after 16K and does great as a you know a shoot style guy as he's got that legitimate background. Um, just someone who was bubbling underneath a little bit, suffering in tag matches. Uh, did some okay stuff with JT Dunn, and then this past year, I think as he's broken into doing mostly singles and then mixing in some tag here and there, has really shined. And um, he's honestly a guy who's kind of more sky is the limit as we head into 2017 with the WXW obviously being very behind him. They put the shotgun title on him and they're sending him around the world with a shotgun title. So, um, he, yeah, he's definitely a guy who I think is poised to break out again, and but is already really quite there having phenomenal matches. Um, predominantly always plays the same character, but as we said, he can he can work in some shoot-style aspects where he's playing up his King of Taunts and all of his bullshit, but in a more believable, kind of cocky, asshole way. Um, then it can also just be a really basic baby face tagging with Shane Strickland. The German crowd can get super behind um, at the end of that tournament when they finally did win the titles. I think everyone was really kind of shocked at, or at least I was kind of shocked at just how much the crowd was behind that group of foreigners winning the tag titles there. So just kind of goes to show his charisma and his ability to tell phenomenal stories in ring. Yeah. Davis has another one. I feel guilty about leaving off the list, but when I just looked at it, I'm not sure who I would have knocked off for him. Uh, like you said, extremely charismatic guy. Uh, you mentioned a lot of the stuff that he did, but I'm surprised you didn't mention his CCW stuff where that best of the best final against Jonathan Gresham. Tremendous match. That oh, jeez. The best of the best, like, honestly, has kind of felt like so long ago, but yeah. there was so much great stuff that you're so right. Yeah, that final was amazing. Yeah, and then down with the sickness against Dave Christ. That match is completely insane. <laughs> like, that match... Like that's the only match like like that this year that David Starr has wrestled, where it's almost like bordering ultra violence. It's a com- complete nutty match going all across the arena, insane spots. David Starr takes skewers to his head. He never does that, so that was an insane match. And then WXW, like you mentioned, he's kind of become a star over there, honestly, which is really cool to see. You know, on Inner Circle. The first one he faced Zack Sabre Jr., which was a really great match that I think is probably one of the more unheralded matches of the year. 
they mentioned the JML tag, JML JMLO tag team, where they go into that tag league, and then coming out of it, they're arguably the most overact in the company. Uh, unforeseen circumstances made that team and that title run be cut short. But David Starr still feels like a David Starr still feels like a big deal there, even without having his tag team partner. And he had a just had a tremendous match with Walter on Shotgun TV recently, where he's selling for Walter, who's absolutely murdering him. And, and um, in Beyond, you, me- you already mentioned the Eddie Edwards match from a couple of months ago, but then on American Rana, he had that Johnny Gargano match. Which was the continuation of American Rana that last year, where Davis Archita the win last year, but he had the he got a clean win this year. So that's a cool little story that they were telling there. He had a really good match with Anthony Henry in Legacy, I think, some promotion in Pennsylvania. So Davis R's in a lot of great stuff this year. I'm sad I didn't get him on the list, but look, I'm glad that you had him on because well, at least we got to talk about him. Yeah, right. Alright, so who's your 34? My 34 is Evil. Oh, okay. Did you have Evil on your list at all? No, I didn't have him on my list. Um, Just amazing as he showed back up in New Japan um, with this whole new, totally different gimmick going from, like, the bright color fun guy to this, like, evil monster with the hood <laughs> and the and he's dark and he's kind of this mix of, like... Uh, Kevin Sullivan and um, maybe like Muda or something you know what I mean like this really cool character that he's playing uh, meanwhile then in ring he just gets beefier and more solid and I've seen him up close and personal and he's you know <laughs> five foot seven maybe you know all of like 200 pounds max um, and just he brings it with the intensity and fire in the ring and meanwhile it doesn't matter singles matches throughout the G1 phenomenal stuff every time I think the match with Naito really stood out as something great but match with Elgin was just as good you know the guys um, just had so many great matches during this G1 then you turn around and he can tag with Naito as the um, the kind of the lackey muscle he can tag with Abushi playing kind of or not Abushi with Bushi um, playing more like a little bit more like equals and he's there to save the little guy from getting beat up then he tags with Sonata where it feels more like he's the the commander of the the team and Sonata's there to hit the spots while Evil's kind of you know directing traffic so I just think that he can fit all these different roles. He's always super stiff and believable in every match. I think he can go toe-to-toe with anyone, and you can buy into the match. I think um, the the feud with Shibata as he wins the title. Um, I could see issues with Evil being mostly that his matches do get repetitive with the same kind of chair attacks and stuff like that, but um, he can switch it up and focus on a body part when he needs to. Um, mostly big concussive knockout blows. Great false finish moves that you definitely buy into as possible match enders with moves that he never finishes matches with. Um, there's especially that kind of, uh, I think it's like a, a sit out, uh, spine buster move that everyone talks about. I don't remember the name of it, but it's like that move always looks like it kills and it's just going to take a guy out. Then he throws these big meaty, nasty lariats. So I just think evil's a guy who really shined this year and just, he fits my, he kind of scratches that itch for me, which is kind of hossy guys. Even if he's kind of small, I love that he he uses every bit of his you know tiny frame to come across as a big monster. So I just I really appreciate how big he can work for being such a small guy. Yeah, he has that quality that Ishii almost has too. Where Ishii, even though Ishii is like you know five six 
and may not even be 200 pounds, but Ishii is like a complete world beater where you buy Ishii walking up to the biggest guy in a bar and just punching him in the mouth. Evil has that same quality where you just buy him as a complete badass. And I've always liked him, even um, as Watanabe. I got, to saw, I got to see him live last year and he faced Donovan Dijak. So I always really liked the guy and thought he had potential, but he's over-delivered, I thought, in this gimmick where it could be really goofy, but he's so serious in the ring and he lays it in so much that the goofiness with the whole you know cloak and the plastic scythe, even though that is really ridiculous looking, you don't laugh at him when he's in the ring because you know he's going to knock somebody's head off. Yeah, and I think he's a guy, as you say that, that if, unfortunately, I think the language barrier hurts it, but I think that if he was an American guy and he saddled with this shitty gimmick and he makes it work in a few years, we, you know, as he puts it together and becomes a big deal, we start talking about how he was able to overcome such a goofy gimmick so well and make it work that, you know, like a, as they talk about Cody Rhodes doing stuff like that, making weird gimmicks work, or, you know, to the biggest extent, like The Undertaker being able to make a, a kind of goofy gimmick be believable and work and I think Evil's got a little bit of that in him but I just think that because of the language barrier the translation issues like that where it'll never really be looked at that way that it, what it took on his part to make this work but he's done a great job of making it work right so my 34 is Asami Kadaka I do not have Kadaka on here. Um, Asami was a guy that I definitely have seen some stuff that I really liked, but one that I just didn't see enough. Yeah, so the thing with Asami this year is that he really brought it everywhere that he went. And when I mean everywhere, I mean everywhere, because he was essentially the king of Japanese indies this year. He, for one year, I think, took the throne of Daisuke Sekimoto, where everywhere you look... Whether it was DDT, Big Japan, All Japan, or even in Asami's own promotion of Basara, anywhere Asami showed up, Asami always delivered in the ring, I thought. In DDT, when he was on KOD Champ, having that insane match with um, Masa Takanashi, which is like a forgotten match of the year contender, but that match is so good and saying crowd reactions both of them are really good targeting the respective limbs <clears throat> I think Asami had a tremendous match with Hiroshima in God was it May or something but he had a tremendous match with Hiroshima he had a really good match with Konosuke Takashita earlier in that year as well and then in Big Japan he's teaming with Yuko Miyamoto with Yankee 2 Kenju and they're always doing tremendous stuff as a tag team. They're just one of the more consistently entertaining tag teams to watch. And they're doing it as both like a regular tag team working typical tag match style stuff, but then doing stuff as deathmatch guys, which is something that I'm not a big deathmatch fan. I don't go out of my way to seek it out. But you have to respect the versatility to be able to go from working typical pro style wrestling to working ultra-violent so so seamlessly that you have to give him some kind of respect for it. And then working Basara and wrestling in these main events and stuff and the promotion that he runs and giving it some credibility as Asami is a big name, a big deal, and he's always giving his it's all there. 
that's why he hasn't been in DDT lately because he's focusing on Basara so much. But yeah, I think Asami's just a guy that everywhere he goes, he really lays it all out there. And he's done it in reg- typical pro wrestling matches and as a deathmatch guy. He's done it in undercards. He's done it in main events. He's done it as a tag team. He's done it as a singles guy. I think when you just look at the variety, he like the variety checklist, he just has that one like checked off as much as anyone. Yeah, no, and as I said, he's a guy that what I've seen, I've liked, and I, I definitely see how he can go all over the place in different styles, but Japan, while not a blind spot for me this year, hasn't been where a lot of my focus has been in the last few months, and I think it's just unfortunate for some guys that, because they weren't fresh in my memory, they didn't end up making my list. All right. So my 33 is Maiko Satomura. I do not have Maiko Satomura. So Maiko is on here because, like, say, Negro Casas, who, spoiler alert, he's right after her, uh, it always amazes me how good she is at this point in her career. It's just something that blows my mind to see someone like Micah, who works such a hard-hitting and stiff style, that she can go the way she still does. And there was this tag match, I think, from March 28th. It was Maiko and Kairi Hojo against Io Shirai and Mayu Watani. And to me, that's one of the top five tag matches to take place in all of wrestling this year. I thought it was just tremendous stuff. Maiko's a big part of it, just coming in and throwing bombs. She's a complete ass kicker. She's one of those people where she's always been one of the most... She's always been one of the best offensive wrestlers in wrestling where even though her stuff like can be considered cutesy, it looks vicious at the same time. Like You can't sit here and say that when Michael Satomura does that cartwheel knee that it doesn't look like it knocks somebody out. There's always something about the way that she does something where even if it looks flashy, it looks vicious. And that's something I always liked about her. She rekindled her, her rivalry with Acha Kong this year, Sendai Girls, in a match with in a match in April, and she took an insane bump where she somehow landed on her back on Acha Kong's feet, yet she somehow landed and bounced all the way to the ropes. I don't know how she managed to do that, but that is an incredible bump that I haven't even seen replicated this year. She had a match with Siuri. And Sendai Girls as well, where Sierra is kind of uh, stiff, threw a lot of strikes wrestler. She does MMA too, so that was kind of a hybrid match, and that was something that was very, very stiff and entertaining as well. And then Maiko also put over the new girl in Sendai Girls, who's going to be their next top star, Chihiro Hashimoto. And Chihiro is very good. She's young, she throw she does a lot of suplexes, she's very strong, very, you know, strongly built. And Maiko in this title match, in the biggest match of this girl's career, Maiko takes her by the hand and leads her. Maiko does a really great job controlling. Maiko does a great job, you know, leading the match but not making it seem like Chum Chihiro is that much behind her. She still makes it seem like Chihiro has a chance of winning. And throughout the match, Maiko is selling for her, making sure that she gets her over. 
and she's adjusting her style where she does take up so much of the match with her offense, but she's adjusting it to where that she's allowing this new girl to get the shine because this moment is all about her. The moment is all about her getting the win. And that's something that comes along with that veteran leadership where Maiko can still be great and can still just completely dominate a match when she wants to, but she knows when to let other people shine. And she did that in a match with Io Shirai as well. And I think Maiko just had a really strong year and always feels like a complete badass. She has this like elegant destruction to her and the way she walks out. The music she walks to is really beautiful. She wears this nice robe, but when the match starts, she turns into a complete warrior. And it's always something that's a joy to watch. I probably should have had her on the list, and it's going to seem really bad as I go to my 33 here. Um, you want me to get into it, or what do you think? Yeah, 33. Who, who's I don't even know if I'm I don't even know if we're going to talk about it right now, honestly. Uh, my 33 is Io Shirai. I have Io Shirai higher, yeah. Yeah, I figured. Um, want me to do 32 or? 32, yeah. Think? My 32 is Mandrews, Mark Andrews. Okay. I'm going to assume you don't have him? No, I had him earlier. I had him at, oh, yeah. I had him at 43. I do not remember that. Um, yeah, I had Andrews. Okay, so Mark Andrews, obviously you talked about a great baby face, super amazing seller. Um, he can make everybody look fantastic, I think. Um, there's a reason why Jimmy Havoc started off his crazy heel run in progress by fucking Mark Andrews over because he's the most sympathetic baby face. Um, meanwhile, then you see him in attack. He can he plays this just fun-loving goofball, teams with Nixon Newell, has these great matches. Um, he's a guy who doesn't show... I wouldn't say he ever shows any depth as being able to be an ass-kicker, but he can definitely premium play flyer. a serious... Yeah, he, he can be a premium flyer. He can definitely play a, a jokey Babyface, he can have a lot of fun in FSU, tagging with Eddie Dennis, where it's all about having fun, good time. But then he can also get serious in big time matches with uh, like Chris Hero, just beating the shit out of him, where you really get behind him. So I just think he's probably the best selling babyface in all of the UK, and probably pretty close to the best babyface in the world, honestly, when it comes to underdog selling and getting sympathy from the crowd. Yeah, I agree with that one hundred percent. One thing that you didn't mention there was that, yeah, like, when he did that with Hero, Hero's always a guy that's known for his bully formula. So, I don't think people give Andrews enough credit for how good he was in that match. So, I think the real testament to Andrews' year and his selling as an underdog babyface is that match with Marty's girl from Chapter 35. And the reason why is because Marty and Andrews are the exact same size. Like, maybe Andrews, oh, yeah. little, maybe Andrews is a little bit skinnier. But pretty much, Marty and Andrews are the exact same size. And the way Andrews bumps around bumps around and sells for Skrull makes Skrull seem like a goddamn monster. And it was the perfect way, it was a perfect match to do before the um, Chapter 36. Because it made Skrull look like a killer heading into Progress's biggest show of the year. And Andrews just has that quality where you can just throw him in against anybody... And even if Andrews wins or loses, it just doesn't never feels like he loses anything. He always keeps his heat. He always feels believable as the baby face. You know, so yeah, I like Andrews a lot, and I think people don't ever give him enough credit for being the best underdog baby face in Europe, and maybe you can make a case for him being it in all of wrestling right now. 
Yeah, I don't think that, I, as I said, I don't know that there's anybody who does a better job of getting that sympathy from the crowd than he does. I mean, he just, he looks like he's dead and and you just buy into it as you're, as you're watching. Yeah, and that was your 32? That was 32. All right, so my 32 was Negro Casas. All right, I do not, I unfortunately do not have Negro Casas. And this is another one, like I said, with Mako Satomura, where it just amazes me that Casas can still go on the level that he does. And he took some time off this year. He has some injuries. But it still blows me away how good, you know, 56-year-old Negro Casas is. Like, he has the match with Volador Jr. at Dos Leyendas. And he is taking, you know, power bombs to the floor and taking bumps to the floor, and it's like, dude, you're Negro Casas. You're an established. You've been wrestling for 30 years. You're 56 years old. You have nothing to prove. You don't need to do this. But Negro Casas does it anyway. And he always is going to be this you know, charismatic, sly dude. But now it's gotten to the point where he's the charismatic, sly old man. And he always finds a way to, you know, get he got a victory and he's always doing his little dances and his struts. And it's just something that is just completely endearing. And even though Casas is a Rudo, you love him because it's Negro Casas. He's the only Rudo where I genuinely think that, look, he can be a Rudo all he wants, but he's a he's a Technico. You're not going to boo Negro Casas. And he had a tremendous match against Rey Hechicero from Monterey this year that I know for some people was a match of the year contender. And I can totally see that. Uh, the thing that solidified Casas on this list for me, honestly, is he had a lightning match a couple of weeks ago against Angel de Oro. I'm sure, I'm sure you've seen him, right? Yeah. Yeah, lightning match with Angel de Oro. And for the finish, Casas puts Oro in a sharpshooter. And while he's putting him in a sharpshooter, Casas is fixing his hair. And <laughs> <laughs> it's like, come on, man. Like... No one other than Negro Casas could pull that off just so smoothly. And I just it's amazing to me that the fact that a 56-year-old man just still comes across as that cool. So, look, for that, I had to put him on the list because no, no one can match the personality of Negro Casas. Yeah, I mean... He's just one of the ones that suffers from my lucha bias. Um, I've always appreciated Negro Casas as a character, but unfortunately, I just never been a huge fan of his wrestling. Yeah, I can see, I can see it. So, I'm curious if you have this guy, but my 31 is Tetsuya Endo. No, and what's funny is just a few minutes ago, I was looking over my list and looking at some other stuff on Cage Match and thought about that I should have Endo on the list, and I just, I think he slipped through the cracks. I didn't even think about him while I was making my list. I, I feel like an idiot. So for me, Endo is my DDT MVP. As far as in ring goes, I'd say. Uh, that's. What? Yeah, yeah. Probably. I mean, it depends on if you count Shuji though, because I think I think I don't. Eh. Because he hasn't been there full time all year. Yeah, so I don't really count him as a DDT guy per se, but yeah. Endo is through and through DDT. That's where he's. Do- that's where the book. That's where all of his work is. So, from the tag team with um, Kunosuke Takashita when they're feuding with Shuji and Sasaki, they had tremendous tag matches, and then when they do the King of DDT finals, and it's Shuji 
versus Endo. And we mentioned Shuji killing Kamatani earlier. When we were talking about Hideyoshi Kamatani and his tournament. He killed Endo too. Like he really steamrolled through him. And Endo was kind of sloppy in that match. But Endo was also very fiery. More fiery than I can remember him being any time before. Very sympathetic. And it was one of his best performances of the year. But what what stuck out to me is that when Takashita and Endo had their first match um, against each other this year. The title match that a lot of people I don't think watched. It was from July. And they really laid into each other. It was super stiff. It was two guys that they're tag team partners, but they both want this championship. And it's a tremendous match. And after the match, Daisuke Sasaki, Ishikawa, and Mad Pauly, who have been thorns in the side of Takashita and Endo all year, come out and they offer Endo a spot in damnation. And Endo looking at the shirt and he looks so conflicted. And then Takashita comes up to him and tries to tell, like, talk him sense into him. And then Endo pushes Takashita away and puts on the damnation shirt. And you can just see Endo looking so conflicted. Like, everything he's been through this year, where it's been nothing but failures, it's really a, if you can't beat them, then join the moment. And then ever since then, Endo's been a tremendous heel. Like, he just oozes charisma. You know, a lot of people would probably say Daisuke Sasaki would be, like, the Naito of the group since he's the leader. But I don't Endo just has that swagger that I think is comparable to a Naito's. Like, he has the flashiness, but he also can get downright, like, dirty and grimy when he needs to. And he just has an incredible look. He's gotten way more charismatic than even I expected him to, and I love the guy. So, I think Endo's just had a tremendous year. And I think he's even he's poised for even bigger 2017, where I think he's going to win the KOD championship. But Endo, he's been on fire, and I think everything that he's done this year is starting to gold. Yeah, I think I think for me, he was fine before, but since he's joined Damnation and as a heel, he's really stood out, like you said. And um, I could definitely see Sasaki more as the Naito, but Endo is like Sonata if Sonata yeah. was cooler than Naito. Yeah. Like, that's what he comes across to me. Like, he's supposed to be that kind of second tier guy but he's definitely cooler than Sasaki honestly like yeah. he really stands out to me and I think um yeah I mean the stuff with Takashita was just great I mean the um the the open weight KOD open weight title match that they had earlier in the year fantastic stuff and then yeah as he joins damnation since he's been in damnation he's really shined and again just a major oversight on my part there, I think that Endo should definitely be in my top 50, and, and I feel bad that I didn't get him in there. So, at least we still got to talk to uh, talk about him, though. Yeah. So, who's your 31? Oh, hold on. My 31 is Keith Lee. I don't have Keith Lee. Wow. Oh, that's not shocking, actually. Um, Keith Lee is a guy who I could definitely see why you wouldn't have him, because he doesn't have a lot of high level or not like high level exposure stuff but like his stuff in Inspire with the pure prestige title where he's doing kind of the Nakamura taking the second rate title and making it at the same level as the the main title has been great um 
and he works kind of a totally different style in a lot of different places in um in inspire it's a little bit more toned down it's based more around his character work he just drips charisma he's got this just oozing over the top character that i think you can instantly buy into the second that you see him especially because he can back it up with his size his power and his agility and ability and um yeah, I mean, the stuff in ROH as he comes in with Shane Taylor and this tag team to feud with the, feel like they're put together just to feud with the War Machine and they can size up, you know, they can size up to them man to man because they're fucking huge. But, I mean, he's just the star of the whole thing. I mean, he may not be the star star of the whole thing because I got another guy who's involved in the tournament that comes up later, but he's definitely the star of his team and he stands out big, um, as I said, with all that charisma. Then you go around and his kind of series i think they've had two now and there's going to definitely be a third coming up very shortly of matches with donovan dijack that just push the boundaries of what wrestling can be as these two gigantic men trade just your you know textbook lucha spots just with the crispness and the speed that you'd expect from Rey mysterio coming from giant over 300 pounders that's just something phenomenal um turns around and has a match with John Silver where he takes the you know the pint-sized dynamo John Silver and makes him look like a million bucks uh something that he's got experience with having worked with Jojo Bravo where he did very similar style matches that's what's kind of great about him is that he's um he's experienced in in mixing it up in all the different ways bringing it as the big man bringing it flying bringing it power bringing it based more around his character and his charisma he's he's another one as i said who's got it all maybe not the best technical worker but he did have a fantastic match with zach saber jr this year it was a a bit of a sprint it was a quick one but it was uh, a lot of fun there with zach saber jr um probably in the up in the top half of zach saber jr matches this year for me as it was just so much different and stood out so much as zach is just trying to climb this mountain of a man um the whole way through and then he turns around and in beyond in the same company the next match he has is with uh kimberly and he you know i guess they might be cousins or, or siblings or something as they have the same last name but uh they i mean he's able to have a pretty believable intergender match with a girl that weighs maybe a quarter of as much as him um and he, he really put kimberly over strong there and made her look great in a, another fantastic match so he's a guy who i mean i just keep saying it over and over again it's like if roh doesn't put the title on him or put him into that top level mix here in the next year then they don't deserve to be open because he's a guy who just has everything you want in a top guy as he does have that natural charisma that you just can't teach i guess and you can't teach his size and you can't teach his dexterity and his power and everything that he has he's just he's what you want a wrestler to be he's got the complete package yeah keith is another guy that i feel guilty for not having on um i think the thing is that um i just haven't seen enough of the texas stuff which is like you know obviously he's working places like vip inspire wrestle circus and those like you know i've seen the ricky starks match from inspire i saw the donovan dijack match from wrestle circus but it's so limited that it was hard to make a judgment on him there I'm, not, I'm also not watching Ring of Honor, so it's hard for me to, you know, do that when his when I've just haven't seen a big part of his resume. I've seen the Beyond stuff, and I really loved him in Beyond. I saw some of the Limitless stuff, but yeah, um, I like Keith, tremendous athlete, which is something that always jumps off the page for people. But like you said, he's very, very underrated. 
as far as his charisma goes. Like he has this cockiness and air about him that he almost thinks he's um prestigious. But in a way he almost hasn't earned it yet. But then when he goes around and starts doing kip ups and um the um lay downs and then the drop kicks, it's like, oh, okay, this guy is something that we've never seen before. He starts to earn your respect. He starts to earn that right to be cocky. So, yeah, I love Keith Lee. Glad he's on your list, but I think, for me, someone that isn't watching Ring of Honor and hasn't seen a lot of the Texas stuff, he wasn't going to make it for me. Yeah, no, I can definitely see that. He's an, he's an exposure guy, and if you're not watching the right places, you're not gonna you're just not going to see him. Yeah, so is that your 31 or your 30? That was my 31. All right, so what's your 30? My 30 is Timothy Thatcher. Um, it felt like... Oh, do you have him higher? No, I was about to say I don't have him higher, but okay. Okay. Um, 30 just felt like the perfect spot for him, honestly. And um, it, a lot of it has to do with just the time off. He takes so much time off um, for different injuries, different weird stuff, and he's just kind of missing in action um, for good chunks of the year. Um, meanwhile, I just I think that he knock, he's a guy who knocks it out of the park for me every time. Um, I know that that's kind of my own thing, and a lot of other people don't agree with that. We did an entire episode talking about how much I love Timothy Thatcher already, though, so I'm not going to dive into it too much yeah. here, but I just think that the matches with uh, Roderick Strong was fantastic in PWG, had some of Marty Scroll's best matches this year, in um, even in different companies, not just in one place, uh, the stuff in WXW. So I think if you're someone who's judging him solely on Evolve and you don't like it, that's fine, but he's having he's putting out great matches other places as well. Um, and we talked about just what I think is the issue for some people with Evolve is that it's it's they're basing him more around storytelling and less around the work. Um, I think he's coming back in a way, and I think up until that last match when he just got a concussion in Evolve, um, I think that he was finally kind of bringing it back, and people were probably going to have a chance to appreciate with that really great match with Gulak and. Yeah, I just think he's a guy who's a little bit, you know, injury sick and has other stuff going on in his life prone. But for me, he knocks it out of the park every time. And the only thing that kept him at 30, and as I said, a spot that I felt perfect for him right now, was just that missing so much time. Um, I know others don't agree with me, but I don't really care. I think Timothy Thatcher is phenomenal. Well, yeah, I agree. I love Thatcher, obviously. And um, like you said, the thing about it is that a lot of people base their dislike on Thatcher's 2016 on Evolve work, and it's like, all right, yeah, cool, that's fine, but he's been great everywhere else. Like, that's the thing. It's like, I can't think of a bad or below good Timothy Thatcher match anywhere else that he's been. So PWG versus Roddy, or PWG versus Gulak, or Rev Pro versus Skrull, or in WXW facing Zack Sabre Jr., or in WXW when he's in ring comp in this um, stable with... Um, Axel Dieter Jr. and Walter, where they just come off as complete badasses. Uh, there's this match. I'm not sure exactly what promotion it is, but it's Timothy Thatcher versus his dude Kevin Cross, and it's another great match. It's a some promotion in SoCal, but it's a great match with Timothy Thatcher working with a guy that no one knows about. Um, the tremendous match with Chris Hero, which is I think. Uh, maybe yes, probably my top five for career, for career hero matches this year, which is certainly an accomplishment. So I love Timothy Thatcher, and look, I just didn't put him on my list, but 
uh, there's no I, there was no like objection towards him. I just didn't have a spot for him. Yeah, I I, I, I agree with you. Um, that's why I had a spot for him. So I guess uh, what's your number thirty, Quentin? My thirty is a guy I know you have higher done than Dijak. Yeah, but not as much as you probably think. Huh. All right. So my twenty nine, and I actually thought this, I had this guy higher, but yeah, whatever, it doesn't matter. My twenty nine is Sammy Callahan. I had him at 50, so I guess this is your chance to talk about him. Um, Here's why Callahan is 50 for me. Um, He's very limited. What he does, he's very good at. It took me a long time this year to really get into him, but I did. Um, He is really good at what he does, which is wild, crazy brawls, um, just spitting and snarling and being an uncaged monster. But He's got nothing else, and it was important to me to be more well-rounded if you're going to make it any higher on my list. But that being said, with what he is so great at, that's why I, he got to 50. You know what I mean? That's that's pretty damn good. That's saying that there's only 50 wrestlers in the world that I think are better than him. So, you know, go for it. Tell me about Callahan. Yeah, and look, you know I've been critical of Callahan this year, but I think the thing that always comes back to me is that I think – Callahan projects himself really well. I think he's this, you know, short, pissed off, angry motherfucker that's mad at the world that has Napoleon complex. He thinks he's bigger than he actually is. He thinks he's tougher than he actually is. He thinks he's the baddest man on the planet, essentially. You know, he even does the Nick Gage, um, who's the man thing, whenever he does um, the running, like, face wash. Like, he thinks he's the baddest man on the planet. And I really enjoy that act. I really enjoy this almost like delusional, you know, moody character that he plays. Um, I haven't liked his matches that much in AW as a champion. I'll admit that. But the reason why I'm bringing it up is because I love his character in AW, though. I really liked his character work in AW with the Killer Cult and him having his own faction of guys. I really enjoyed that. The best match he had this year, though, um, in AW was that death match against Pentagon Jr., which was, look, Pentagon Jr. is a guy we've talked about and how what makes him compelling is his charisma. And Sammy Callahan, had, Sammy Callahan has some of that charisma too, but he doesn't tap into it all the time. And I think that he tapped into it perfectly with that match against um, Pentagon Jr. from um, night one of the Jim Lynham tournament. Um, super brutal match. Uh, like they did a spike spot that was a tribute to um, Jacobs versus Whitmer you know a whole bunch of stuff that I really liked um, even in Evolve I thought before Callahan got pulled from Evolve because of Lucha Underground stuff that Callahan was bound to have, was set up to have a really strong year I thought that the obviously like the Evolve 53 tag match him teaming with Zack Sabre Jr. versus Heroes Eventually Die has a lot of praise, and that's seen as a match of the year contender in some circles. But I thought, like, not just that match, that tour, that story of the entire weekend, and Sammy Callahan being so pissed and being so annoyed as Zack Sabre Jr. and Zack Sabre Jr. being the weak link, and then Callahan is just like, okay, fuck this guy, I want to fight him. And then on the last night of that um, triple shot, I thought they had worked a really, really smart match that was centered around Zack Sabre Jr. selling. And 
it's funny because Zack Sabre Jr. has this reputation for not, I guess, letting other people control the match. But Sammy Callahan completely controlled that match. Sammy Callahan is working Zack over completely. And Callahan did a great job doing that. He did, a, he did the same thing in Beyond facing Donovan Dijak. Doing a really great job working over Donovan Dijak's leg. He always has a really great job of setting up his stretch muffler. Like going after, like going after the leg during the course of the match. And then he does his powerbomb, kick out, then a stretch muffler like goes right into it. I always think that's a really cool setup for that finishing move. And it always leads into really cool finishes or sequences. Um, the match with Anthony Henry from PWX. That match is like a complete sprint. That's the real Sammy sprint that everyone talks about. It's Sammy and a guy that, and Anthony Henry, that works that style really well too. And they go out there and have a completely chaotic, nuts, balls to the wall, nonstop action match. And that's something that is, that's his calling card. You mentioned Sammy works these sprints really well. But I think, I mean, you've seen the Windy City Classic. You've seen that match with Hero, right? Uh, yes. I didn't like their first match together. Um, from January? Yeah, it was, uh, January or February. It was definitely early on this year. Yeah, I didn't like that match. And I thought those two came back in Windy City Classic and did some, worked a really smart match. That, at first, it was Callahan trying to stand toe-to-toe with Hero. And Hero is, you know, he's an immovable object. Callahan wasn't getting through. Callahan fakes an injury, tried to take advantage, and it still didn't work. And eventually, you know, Callahan finds something to work for him. He starts working over Hero's leg, and he gets Hero to tap out with the stretch muffler. But I thought it was a really smartly worked match, too, which also, I guess, adds to his resume. So I guess Callahan, for me, is a guy, despite the fact that I think I kind of get, I kind of got bored of him by the half of the year that he still did too much for me to leave him off the list. Yeah, no, and I thought that the the fake injury thing was also good because it played into it. I forget, but uh, Callahan did that in a match just a little while before that in AAW too. So I thought that was an interesting nod. And See, I liked that first Callahan hero match, I think, more than other people, but, um, but I still thought that the second one was just blew it out of the water and right. as i said callahan it took me a while the character i think for me i was like getting worked and i didn't buy into the character and didn't really see that like he knew that he wasn't the monster and that was kind of what turned me off is for a long time i thought that he really believed that he was a bigger monster than he really is and then i slowly started to see the cracks and that's where i kind of put it together and started to appreciate him more yeah so. like there's some, like, there's some thing, like he's this you know angry guy that's mad at the world and has a Napoleon complex that thinks he's bigger and tougher than he actually is. And I can appreciate a character like that. Yeah, that's for sure. So, you want me to do my 29? Yeah, what's your 29? My 29 was my exception to the rule act that got on here. I'm wearing their shirt right now as I went to the NXT Live in LA and it was the only thing I wanted to buy even though they weren't there and that is the top guys, the revival. I have a higher. You have them hired. Fucking yeah. hell. There we go. All right. That's my 29. You want me to go into 28 or what do you want to do? 28. Let's go. 
Donovan Dijak. Right. You were right. I had him higher, but only a couple spots. Uh, phenomenal underdog baby face for a man of his size, but can still also play a dominant ass kicker. Great in tags, great in singles. He's the other half of those amazing matches with Keith Lee that I was talking about earlier. Um, the guy's got it. He's got the spark. He's got the fucking fire. The Just working with Prince Nana, working by himself, uh, that just recently trios match with the Motor City Machine Guns where he was the exclamation point on every one of their triple teams or double teams. He's always standing out huge. Um, seeing him squash Jobber live was one of the scariest things I've ever seen. He looked like he killed this local guy from out there in Las Vegas. Um, then he, The night before, he was in a wild four-man with Jay White, Kamatachi, and Leo Rush, and he didn't look like he was you know, the weak link or couldn't keep up or the slow man out. No, he kept up with those three much smaller men the whole way through. Um, Donnie Dijak, man, how, how do you argue? I mean, he takes the the ace of beyond stupid ass storyline sure the three-way dance that they had was was shitty but he led his credence to the whole thing and made you believe in jt dunn and chris dickinson as being important because they were standing toe-to-toe with donovan dijak and you believed in him so it made you in turn believe in them that's something that's really impressive for a guy as young as him um turns around and the tournament for today becomes the story of Donovan Dijak as he tells this long story getting injured through the match and getting attacked by JT Dunn at the end and then coming back and against Matt Riddle for just a phenomenal story throughout the tournament and then the last the most recent thing that I've seen as we're recording this and I hope you've seen it the Donovan Dijak versus Brian Fury match uh, Brian Fury's retirement and the emotion the passion the fire um, that he gets out of this as he's wrestling his trainer there and just a guy who's really putting it all together. I mean, athletics are there, obviously. Um, the selling, the emotion, the everything in this guy. I mean, he is a bona fide can't-miss star. I don't think that there's any way that Donovan Dijak doesn't you know, continue to stand out. He's just, unless, you know, barring any insane fucking unforeseen turn of events, I don't see how Donovan Dijak isn't a big-time star with just all the gifts that he has. Yeah, Dijak is a guy where... You know, you said that the guy's just like a natural baby face, and I agree. Like, he's like Matt Riddle in that respect, where the guy, like, is just so insanely likable. He has that fire, he has that spark that you want to buy into him as your guy. He's the guy that's going to lead you and the, and the fans into the future. But he also was a really, really good heel. He's really good at being cocky, he's really good at being arrogant. And that was exemplified in that Brian Free match you talked about, where. For a, for a good portion of the match, just like, you know, even kill, you know, they're just going all out there to have a good match for Brian Fury's last match and beyond. And then out of nowhere, Dijak turns into a complete dick. And Brian Fury is on his knees. And then Donovan Dijak is in his trainer's face. Like, I've done everything that you could never do and just completely bad-mouthing him. And... It's great because he eventually gets his comeuppance in the match and Brian Fury wins. But Donovan Dijak, you know, out of nowhere creates this hill for Brian Fury to climb when it wasn't really existent without, well, throughout the entire match. He made it out of thin air, essentially, of him being a dick. Like, that wasn't the entire match. It's just something that happened out of nowhere. And it made for some really compelling wrestling down the stretch for that match. You know, 
the guy is a complete physical freak. You know, he can toss around, you know, people, but he can do fucking springboard acai moonsaults and topes to the floor. He can have really strong singles matches focused on selling, like the Bobby Fish match or the Sammy Callahan match. But then he's great in a spot fest from like WrestleMania weekend. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen this, but did you see his match versus Will Ferrara? Yeah, the fucking that crazy ass choke slam. Yes, that match is ridiculous. And then you know his stuff with it, like versus Leo Rush. Some of the like like the slightest bit of ROH TV I've watched this year is him and Leo Rush tearing it up. You know Donovan Dijak. Oh, that is, match with Jason Kincaid didn't even yeah. that just popped in my head. Jesus Christ, that was great. Go watch that, everyone, if you haven't seen it from ROH TV. Yeah, man, Dijak's just a tremendous professional wrestler, man. He's really good at everything and it's a shame to me that you know I'm not sure when Ring of Honor will capitalize on someone that's that good like it'd be a shame if Donovan Dijak versus Keith Lee isn't a singles program in Ring of Honor in 2017 yeah no no I know I I was saying it about Moose and Hanson for a while that I thought they should be building up to a final battle main event with Moose and Hanson but no it's Dijak and Keith Lee that should be the the thing, I mean, they've already shown the, the charisma that they have in ring together, the natural chemistry. Yeah, like, he's just a fucking freak. And we didn't even get into it. He had, like, a brief sprint over in Europe this year where he had some great matches also. I mean, He had great matches just, with some, you know, Josh Bodum and Bad Bones. And, yeah, I mean, just good stuff all around for Dijak. He's a guy who just doesn't, I think, is poised... Again, I say it poised, but I mean, there's just no fucking way that Donovan Dijak isn't a big star. It's it's just complete lunacy if they don't make Donovan Dijak the biggest fucking deal in wrestling because he's just got, again, another guy. He's got everything. He's just such. He's just a freak. He's a, as you said, freak athlete. All right, so my twenty-eight, right? Yeah. My twenty-eight is Daisuke Sasaki. Um. Oh my God! No, I don't. I don't have him. Just like Endo, he was. And actually, Sasaki was on the list for a while and oh. got bumped down. Right. Um, but Endo was just missed completely. And he, Endo, if I he had been, if I had had Endo instead of Sasaki, um, Endo would be on the list. But yeah, I, I completely. I he just kind of got bumped. So Sasaki to me, even though he has a weaker in ring case than Endo, Sasaki is undoubtedly the MVP of DDT this year because the company really did revolve around him. The company revolved around him, you know, getting under the skin of these two youngsters of Takashita and Endo. Um, Sasaki wins the championship and he had been a thorn in the side of Takashita and Takashita finally beat Sasaki and it's a great moment, a great match. But then Sasaki, I mean, but that, like Takashita doesn't get the, you know, enjoy it that much because Sasaki turns his best friend against him, which is, you know, he manipulated Endo, got into Endo's insecurities and, you know, made Endo join his, you know, group of misfits and the tag team stuff with Endo, with like with um Sasaki and Ishikawa versus Endo and Takashita produced some really great matches. The thing about Sasaki is that it's not about match quality with him. It's the fact that he, in any capacity, will get um, what he's trying to do over. Like when he's facing World's cutest tag team. Something, an act I'm not really fond of, 
but he's doing his job there being a complete sleazeball and trying to come on to Candace. You know, he's doing his job there. He's wrestling, like, you know, three-minute matches against Takashita and, like, winning with Fluke, Hurricane Ranas. And that leads up to their bigger matches where when Takashita finally kicks out of the Hurricane Rana, it's a big deal. Or, you know, the Sasaki and Endo tag team is just tremendous. Doing great work against the uh, Yuko and Harashima, against Takashita and Mike Bailey, against Mike Bailey and Dick Togo. You know, I think Sasaki, just for the fact that this company has revolved around him, his charisma, the stable that he's building, and how popular he's gotten, I think you can't deny how important he was to DDT this year. It wasn't like if the company, it wasn't like the company would die if, you know, Sasaki wasn't there. But you have to acknowledge the fact that everything in DDT this year revolved around Daisuke Sasaki. Um, no, yeah, the whole Damnation storyline is all about him, and, and then it is a very interesting thing with the Indo Takashita kind of him luring him away. It's almost like uh, I was going to say like Adam and Eve, but you know they're not dating; they're like brothers. I don't know, like Cain and Abel kind of thing, where the this devil is trying to you know kind of come between them. Which Sasaki has been doing such a great job of playing that character. Yeah, he's a complete he's a complete slimeball, and you know, look, he's. Like he's like that's like who you compare to Naito. Like people cheer Sasaki and all that, but you know he's meant to be a heel. Damnation are meant to be heels, but they get cheered. And, you know, same thing with you know Los Ingobernables. Sasaki and and uh, Sasaki and Naito have a lot of um, similarities. Yeah, I think Damnation is just such a much better version of Lij. Though, I mean, honestly, I think Damnation is just so fucking so just so much fun and so great. And the stuff with um, Shuji Ishikawa. Has been just really put it over the top. Yeah, and um, I guess it's time for my number twenty-seven. But my number twenty-seven is L.A. Park. Okay, <laughs> you know I don't have them. Uh, yeah, um, this is another one like Casas and Satamora, where on an even bigger scale, what L.A. Park is doing is amazing me because he doesn't do this often. Like it's not often that you get great L.A. Park matches in this side of his career because the, there's really, really good L.A. Park or they can be really bad, cringeworthy L.A. Park. It can go both ways. But I think this year, he's just been tremendous. He had a fire under his ass for whatever reason. Um, I'm sure you've heard about the L.A. Park versus Rush feud in a, that was like going all over Mexico in elite... In Monterey, they might have had a match um, in, it wasn't Arena Coliseo, they've had a lot of encounters, but the Rush and LA Park matches, they weren't just brawls, The they felt like, you know, protests, they felt like they were something part of a bigger cause, like Lucha Libre returning to its roots of men who don't like each other and they don't give a fuck about anything else that's around them. They want to hurt each other. And that's especially true in that elite match they have in Arena Mexico. When Arena, where Arena Mexico doesn't allow blood, they don't like getting too crazy. And these two go all out. Blood everywhere, throwing trash cans, throwing chairs, and the match gets called off. And instead of just stopping, you know, when leaving, once people say that, you know, they're done they stand there in the middle of the ring and keep fighting. It's like almost poetic that they just don't 
care at all about the outside world. It's two gladiators fighting each other and nothing else matters at that moment in time. And I think for the fact that 50-year-old L.A. Park is that compelling is so it's like something like so intriguing to me. And it's not just the Rush stuff. He had a really great match with Blue Demon Jr. And Blue Demon Jr. is someone I have never liked at all. And of course, he's gotten you know worse as he's gotten older. But L.A. Park is such a great brawler, such a great ass-kicker, that he takes Blue Demon Jr., who can't do much, and all he has to do is just bloody him up, beat him down real quick, and they had a legitimately great match. And it was something, you know, that was solely on the back of L.A. Park, you know, beating the shit out of Blue Demon Jr. With a Caristico Cage match that I know you watched. Didn't really like that much, but the reason why I liked it is because it's L.A. Park, you know, wrecking shit. He's just going around beating the living hell out of Caristico. So I think he's probably he's one of the best brawlers in wrestling still. He had one of the best views in wrestling this year. And he's one of the most, I guess, believable guys laying in a beating. And I think doing all that as, you know, 50 or 50 year old, you know, 50 years old or older is just um wildly impressive. And it's, and it's you know, impressive because we don't get these kind of years from L.A. Park often now. Yeah, and L.A. Park has everything against him for me. I mean, he's a lucha brawler, which is just not my thing. Yeah. Um, and I totally get it. Like, I I get why people love L.A. Park. I could, can appreciate an L.A. Park match. The stuff with Rush just feels wild and violent and crazy, and he plays it to the hilt. So um, I give him credit for that. He can get me to buy in, but he's just – he's not going to make my, you know, top 100 workers because he's just – He's got so much going against him when it comes to my personal taste when it comes to wrestling. Um, so my number 27 is Big Mike Elgin. All right, I don't have Big Mike. You don't have Big Mike? No. Um, what can you say about Big Mike in 2016, right? The guy is just, I think, flawless in, in New Japan. I don't think he's had what you could call a bad match in New Japan. Um, just, um, the, I mean, what could you say? The lethal match from Wrestle Kingdom 10? Um, okay, I was not really thinking about that because Wrestle Kingdom was so long ago. That was probably his worst match of the year, and then ever yeah. since then, he has been just on a hot streak. Um, the stuff with the Intercontinental title, also having... I loved him wearing the dual belts with the, um... God, what the fuck is... The Elite title from, yeah, that, from that Lucha Libre com- company that was phenomenal as he's going around everywhere with the two belts. Um, had one of Zack Sabre Jr.'s best matches of the year. Um... <laughs> Was supposed to try to do that match again in PWG. It gets canceled, so he wrestles two matches that night. One with Kamatachi that I thought was great, then another with Galloway that I thought was even better, honestly, for me, just because it's two big hosses brawling all around everywhere. Um, just, yeah, as I said, really came into his own, just had some great matches throughout the G1. He was, you know, one of the other, you know, seven or eight MVPs of the G1 this year as he was just so good in every match that he had. Um and yeah, just tagging with uh, Tanahashi to start and then kind of going away from there and being able to stand on his own as his own thing. Um, coming in for very minimal shots in ROH here and there. Um, working some stuff in Texas now, Wrestle Circus, uh, got some big matches coming up. I mean, you know, the guy is just, uh, 
just something special. I think every time I see him, very believable, all of his spots, toning down his stuff so it's not so over the top now. He really milks everything and gets lots of drama um, and just you know gets you to buy into it. Mixing, As I said, mixing up styles depending on who he's going against can have totally different matches. Um, he's great throwing around cruiserweights, but he's also great wrestling other big men. Um I'd say like the big demo match is probably one of another one where you could say it's like a weaker showing, but not necessarily his fault there as it was a little bit of demo trying to get too cute. And I think a lot of Elgin stuff in that match kept it grounded and basic and, and good. So yeah, I just say that, um, big Mike has really reinvented himself this year and really put all the pieces together just to be a phenomenal wrestler who kind of gets the most out of every match. Oh yeah. I love Mike. I love Michael Elgin and um. Look, I think he's one of the more underrated, um, I guess, what would be called bigger guys in the scene when it comes to he's able to work bigger guys and smaller guys and have no problem doing either one. Which is, you know, something I can't say for everyone that's, you know, I guess supposed to be a straw man on the scene. Like, you know, Big Demo is a guy where, you know, I just don't think he has good chemistry with other big guys. It just never feels right. Except for like Jeff Cobb, big demo never feels right for me facing other big guys. Or like even Jeff Cobb, like I'm not sure if I uh, if I ever like really get into Jeff Cobb versus other big guys except for like certain moments. So it's always weird for me like say like Jeff Cobb versus Congo Kong. I'll, um, like outside of like that one like like insane suplex where Cobb is like holding him and throws him the match as a whole doesn't get me. But I think Michael Elgin is really good at doing it both. Like, he's good at playing the hoss and then good at playing the bully. So he can be the hoss and face evil. And those two can have really strong, stiff matches with each other like they did. And then he can go and face a smaller guy like a Tetsuya Naito or a Zack Sabre Jr. where they have surprisingly good chemistry. So, yeah, I really like Elgin. I think he had a strong G one. I think he had a really good he had really good matches with Kenny Omega before that. Um the Naito feud produced some excellent matches and Naito proved to be one of Elgin's best opponents ever, I thought. Um it sucks that he, you know, broke an orbital bone in his face, you know, and all that. Cause I think he could have closed the year out stronger with a world tag league with a tag league run or, you know, and working any other indies around the um country, but you know, that's just life. But yeah, I really enjoy Michael Elgin, and I'm not surprised he made your list. All right. I mean, do you want to you want to close this out 26, or do you want me to do 26 first? I, I, for some reason, I think you'll have a year 20, my 26 you'll have. What do you think? All right, what's your 26? My 26 is Kenny Omega. Uh, yeah. So you have him later? Yeah. Well, later, All right. next episode, because it's the last one. Yeah, what's your 26? All right, we're going to close this part of our top 50s out with my 26 is Ray Hechicero. I do not have him. Yeah, I figured that. Um, Hechicero was a guy that I think is the... Hmm, he's one of the top three most talented guys in wrestling, I think. I think like him, Jonathan Gresham, and Kenny Omega are guys where they can just do everything, and it's insane to me to watch it. Hechicero is a guy where he can do this amazing mat work. 
that no one else even comes close to in Lucha. Where there's all these, you know, wacky submission transitions and holds in the way he maneuvers his body and it's so smooth. And you don't expect it because Hechicero is kind of a big guy. But he's so smooth at what he does. He can actually, he's actually a really good brawler. Too, which is something that for a lot of you know, oh, be called maestros, you don't expect them to be great brawlers. But Hechicero has that in his bag as well. He's a really, he's really good. Like he has like great high spots. He's deceptively athletic. Has really captivating dives in his arsenal. He has great strongman spots. He's great at selling. You know, it's he's great at every single thing. He has a really great look. Uh, with the whole, you know, fire rocks thing in the black, you know, in the whole like dark and black and gold outfit that he has going on. Hachisero just has a lot of stuff going for him. And his output this year, I thought, has been tremendous. He had um, the Negro Casas match from, Mon- from Monterey. That was excellent. He is in a couple of the best straight up tag matches to, pay- to take place in Mexico this year. Or actually, three of the best tag matches to take place in Mexico this year. Um, one of them is Hechicero and Dr. Cerebro versus Los Traumas. And that's, that's a great 2-on-2 tag match that ends in a disqualification. Hechicero when um, Cavernario, that I mentioned earlier for Cavernario, is Hechicero and Cavernario versus Black Terry and Bestia 666. Another really great 2-on-2 tag match, which is something you don't get to say that much for Lucha Libre. And then it's Hechicero and Vangelis versus Guerrero Maya Jr. and the Panther. Another really great straight-up tag match. He's always a really good trios worker, which is something I don't think he gets enough credit for. He, you know, there's an art to being a trios guy. You know, you have to be able to get your stuff in without overshadowing everyone else too much because other people have to get in the ring too and get their shine. Or you have to be able to, you know, take, you know, take turns, you know, beating down someone or, you know, know when to get out of the ring so someone else can do their stuff. Hechicero is an excellent trios worker and even if he's not in the ring a lot, he's just great at making sure that he gets his stuff in and it always looks great. Always looks great. Great lightning matches. He had a match with La Mascara, who I'm sure you've seen, right? You watched that Dragon Lee La Mascara match for Match of the Week Club? Yeah. So Yeah, I did. The thing is that I don't like La Mascara. And Most people don't. Yes, I don't like La Mascara. But Hechicero works his ass off in his lightning match against La Mascara. And it's only eight minutes. But Hechicero is trying his damnedest in Arena Mexico to make something of this. And he does. It's a really good match. And I think the thing that takes it over the top for me is Hechicero... Versus Ray Bucanero from one of the Dia de las Muertes shows from October that CMLL ran at, at the end of October. And it's this, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on because obviously it's, you know, Halloween, Day of the Dead themed, and there's uh, like people dressed as like zombies or ghouls, and it's all dark in the Arena Mexico, which is something I think you'd appreciate because you have a problem with the lighting. But it's. A really cool presentation, and Hechicero, you know, finally gets a big moment after for years busting his ass in the Monterey scene, 
and he took a gamble moving to Mexico City to try, you know, to make something of himself in CMLL, and it paid off. It's a tremendous match. You know, Hechicero displays everything that makes him great: the technical wrestling, the amazing, like you know, power spots, the high flying, the selling, the timing. He does everything that you know makes Hechicero so special. And honestly, like even though I only have him at 26, I think him along with Rush are guys that when I look at today's generation of Lucha Libre, these are the guys that are going to go down as like the, you know, all timers like these, you know, Hechi Sarah is already like kind of building that kind of reputation among, you know, this bubble that enjoys the technical wrestling, the brawling, all of that stuff. And I think that Hechi Sarah is just going to wind up being one of those all-time great luchadors that when we look back, you know, 10 years from now doing whatever, you know, greatest wrestler ever project, Hechi Sarah is going to be a guy that a lot of people push for that, um, in these, um, you know, lucha in this lucha libre camps. And I thought this um, year was the definitive Hechi Sarah was like here to stay um, year. Yeah, I mean... I went back and looked through it. I had Hechicero at 63, so he just kind of didn't make the cut for the top 50. Um, and that goes to say a lot as a luchador, because I don't have any luchadors really on my list. He's yeah, so good at different styles. It took me a minute to kind of appreciate him, because I don't like lucha. The, something about just some of the stuff that he does, I mean, like the wacky spinning holds and things, but then I kind of start buying into it and I, and I get it. And yeah, his mat work, his power work, his ability to base, his ability to sell and, and feed and trios matches as something that I'm not a huge fan of. He can definitely fit that role really well. But then when you do check out some of his singles matches, um, one you didn't mention, the Sammy Gravara match, I thought was he did a great job there making Sammy look fantastic. Yeah, and, and I didn't mention him. Um... He had a match with Virus that was also, yes. you know, you know, complete maestro work, which is, you know, something that a lot of people love and it's, you know, tremendous work. It's that's it's straight up, you know, mat work. And it's just, you know, a work of art. But yeah, you know, that's a good way to end it. I'm glad that Hetchy Sero actually, I guess, made it to a final cuts portion of your list. But that's it for this episode. Uh so we're gonna be doing 25 to number one next time. Uh, not sure when that's exactly going to be recorded, but hopefully these are going to be the these are going to be uploaded the same day. So it's not like there's going to be a gap in when these are going up online. Um, Timothy, any plays you want to get out the way? Um, well, I just want to tease. I think what the only people that I know that I've already said that we're definitely talking about are Omega and Grisham that we haven't talked about yet. Can, is there anybody you think of that you said you were going to talk about that we haven't brought up yet? Um, you brought the revival. Okay, the revival. Shingo Takagi. Oh, Shingo! I forgot about that. Yeah, I brought up. Shingo. I had him way low. Um, Io Shirai. Oh yeah. So there we go. So you guys have some good stuff to look forward to. But meanwhile, um, if you're not listening to this, you can go listen to my other podcast, Lucha Undead, and this week in wrestling. Um, both on PTBN, one on play or one on Pro Wrestling only, one on PTBN and Pop. Um, otherwise, just follow me on Twitter at Lucha Undead, and you'll find everything. All right, you can follow me on QT. You can follow me at, on Twitter at QT underscore Moody. Um, I'm gonna like I'm doing obviously this top fifty wrestlers of 2016 show, but at some point in January, myself, Trask, and Brock, both from wrestling with words. 
will be doing a podcast covering the best 100 matches of 2016. That's going to be a lot more painful than this is. So, so that's going to be something to look forward to at some point. But we'll see you all at part two. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you at part two. Thank you.